Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 22 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. How can you be sure that a system, tactic, technique, or skill, or even you for that matter, are still effective, still relevant? All of these things require periodic evaluation, deconstruction. If you break things down and rebuild them with the benefit of new knowledge and wisdom, and you end up with what you started with, then you know that you can still rely on it. If gaps are recognized, then the original can be improved or reimagined completely. Living this process isn't easy for oneself or for others. You will inevitably encounter resistance, but it is always worth the work. My guest this episode embodies this. He is constantly curious, inquisitive, reflective, and forthright. He offers valid perspective shifts that are worth spending time pondering. It's a privilege to introduce you to Scott Chisholm. Hey, Scott. Hey, Scott. How are you? I'm good. How about you? Good. Finally. This <laughs> <laughs> is just kind of the way it goes. We work away at it, and eventually it lines up, and I don't want to force it, so when yeah. it's meant to be, it's yeah. meant to be. Exactly. You're at home? I'm at home, yes. I'm in my office. You traveling much? It goes in ebbs and flows. It's been quiet probably, I'd say, for the last six or eight months, more so because of me, because of being off with PTSD, and I keep hearing these rumblings. People don't like me doing stuff, which is kind of interesting. When that should be part of the healing process. Fundamentally, that's what it is. With my psychiatrist, psychologist, occupational therapist, it's like, this is all really, really good for you. But from the world that we come from, you know, oh, if you can do that, you can come to work. Just a disconnect in understanding when I try to explain, well, what do you know about treatments for PTSD and the like? And there's ignorance. So the irony I always say is that if I had six rental properties, nobody would know, nobody would care, and they wouldn't care because it's fairly normal within the work that we do, right? Yes. The stuff that I'm doing is not normal. Which is why it's important. Well, that's exactly it. It's, you know, the, you know, I like the, the contrast and the ironies, and that sort of gets us into that leadership stuff. What is it? I remember last year I posted a question on Twitter, what is change? And after multiple people tried to answer, I said, well, if you think you know what it is, you're not doing it. Huh. Change is not having the answer. <laughs> change is, I don't know what change is. Jordan Peterson talks about how there's order and chaos and that the thriving and the change and the growth happens oscillating between the two, right? Yeah. And that's, you know, coming from our perspective of the work that we've done for so many years, we practice that every day, but yet we don't practice it outside of those calls. We do figure things out. We are dependent on people's innate abilities and their personality, who they are. People seem to, quote, step up. Well, they're just being themselves. They're allowed to be vulnerable and authentic because they have to be. We do things that are incredible, and then we go back to the hall and clean up and go back to our old practices. Well, let's work our way back and then up to that again. So where you grew up, and let's work forward from there. Okay, sounds good. grew up in northern Ontario, a small town called Marathon. To look for it, if you look on the most northerly tip of Lake Superior, that's where you'll find it. And when I grew up there, it was a pulp and paper town. That's why the town was created. It was for a pulp mill. The population was about 2,400 when I grew up. And interestingly, it's in an area where there's small groups of reserves. And it's in an area that was wanted because of its deep water port. 
so they could essentially shop pulp and paper around the world from this small town in northern Ontario. So that was my hometown. My grandfather was actually one of the first people in 1945 to go into the town to settle it for the mill. So when I look at historical pictures, it's kind of fascinating. You know, my dad living in a tent when he first got to Marathon because there's literally no houses built at the time. Is it still a functioning town today? What's the population now? Do you know? Well, the population now is around 3,500. In the late 70s, early 80s, there was a bit of a gold mining boom in the area called Hemlo. So mining is the primary industry now. And quite literally, the mill has not only been shut down, it's been torn down. So in its place on the lake is just back to bedrock. So it's gone through a lot of changes uh, quite, quite dramatically. But only grown by 1,000 people. Well, it grew probably to 5,000 and then back down, actually. Yeah, a lot of fluctuations. But in the time that I was there, nobody ever imagined the mill to be closed. It was jobs forever. It was, we live in this area with this massive forest. What people weren't realizing is that the fiber was being cut at a rate that was unsustainable. And that's what ultimately happened to many of the public paper mills. In a small town, everybody was working. So when it comes to economy, everybody had jobs. Everybody was working, predominantly in the mill. For my family, my dad owned his own business. He was a garage service station, auto body mechanic. Which is interesting on that, I was listening to your podcast with Rob Martin, and we share some stories of our dads as auto body mechanics. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so my dad owned his own business, and uh, I grew up in a family of five kids. Uh, I'm the middle one of, uh, of five. And how is that dynamic with you and your siblings and your folks? Well, it's certainly evolved and changed over time. Family was very, very close-knit. You know, Christmases, we were at everybody's houses. Growing up in Marathon, essentially, if you weren't related to me, you might as well have been. Uh, one of the things I realized is growing up in a small town, it wasn't until I left that I realized up until I was probably 17, 18 years old, I had really never met anybody hmm. because I knew everybody. <laughs> Uh, so meeting people was actually something I had to learn to do, uh, that basic sort of introduction of somebody you'd never met before. It was a very northern, hardworking town, so alcoholism was a big issue within the community. It's sort of, I always say that the benchmark for alcoholism was, you know, depends how you look at it on the scale, very low or very high, but it was definitely an issue and that uh, affected my family as well. Not much diversity in perspectives and worldviews. It was a very linear for everybody. Very, very limited. And and, and it's that world, especially at that time, right? There's no internet. There's no, I mean, even the highways to get in and out was really challenging. And, you know, you look at a northern environment, you're really closed in for a good six months of the year. So isolation in many ways, not just geographically, but I think intellectually, probably, you know, emotionally as well, I think in many different ways. Yeah, everyone comes there for the same purpose, to live a very similar life. Yeah, and actually that point of coming there, there was not many people who did. It was always these growing families. Uh, There's people who would leave to go to university and get jobs in other areas, but... I don't remember a lot of new people coming to town, you know, once in a while, you know, every year you get a few families, usually administrators within the mill bringing in their families that would flow through, but um, fundamentally not, not a lot of change, but again, very stable when it comes to a family. So it's interesting growing up in a small town, especially as I grow older and seeing perspectives of different places, different cities, different dynamics. What was your dad's influence on you and how he wanted to see you progress and what kind of work did he see you getting into? 
it was a conflict for him in that my dad was a uh, he was a kind, caring, loving, really compassionate human being. His business struggled, and I always say when I look back on now, probably because he was too kind and too nice, and he would be too good to people. <laughs> so that struggled. And so my dad was a really hard worker. He worked 12, 14 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, he was definitely a provider, but it was work that he saw as very, very hard. And he really didn't want myself or my brother. I've got one brother and three sisters, so it was predominantly on the boys. He really didn't want me doing auto body work. He thought it was too hard. So it wasn't a lot of teaching. A lot of stuff that my dad, I would do with my dad would be in the bush. Call it hunting in the fall, but he was such a kind, compassionate guy. He didn't like killing things. But we'd go out, quote, hunting. And I remember one experience with him is that we were out partridge hunting and and there was like a flock of partridge. And, you know, I knew my dad at the shooting range could never miss a target. But at this time with partridge, you don't move very quickly. He didn't hit a one. <laughs> it wasn't until years later I figured, hey, you know, what? he really didn't want to hit them. What he loved was being in the bush and meeting nature. That's something I certainly learned from him. And, you know, the value of what you get from a sunrise or a sunset, uh, the smell of the bush in the fall. So it was really, I mean, he was incredibly mindful in that way, probably way ahead of his time in talking about mindfulness. But but he really was, he was really connected. So, but his work-wise, he, he really didn't want me doing what he was doing. But did you pick up on some of the craftsmanship of it? What he did have me do was sand cars. And even to this day, you know, they, you know it certainly built a passion that I have for sanding and finishing wood. But I remember him, I'd sand a car and I thought it was absolutely glass perfect. And he was rubbing his hand on it and then spend a few minutes and just show me what perfect was, um, which had to be with, with that sort of finishing. But it really drew me into a passion later in life, probably the last 10, 15 years of finishing wood, finishing furniture. I do a lot of live edge work now and it's predominantly for me, it's finishing wood. And it really is to that perfection of the way I like wood finish now. And for me, with a lot of things that have gone on throughout my life, I've been somewhat of a perfectionist, and it hasn't always served me well. And I've had to learn through different processes of the concept of good enough. Um, but working with one of my therapists, she said, you know, it's good to have an outlet for those feelings of perfectionism, and wood is a good place to put that. And that's what I've done is, you know, when I go to finish wood, and it's quite extraordinary what are the processes that I go through when I do it. It's really a lot of thoughts of my dad. It's very mindful. It's very meditative. But it is this memories of not just necessarily my dad, but this intergenerational connection with somebody in my life that is quite meaningful. I don't think a lot of people can find that thing that they can reconnect across time in that way and perhaps ground them. Yeah, allowing myself, because the other piece when it comes to my dad and my family, so I was in Marathon and I graduated grade 12 in June of 1982, but prior to that, February 25th of 1982, is when my dad died by suicide. You know, there I was 17 years old. You know, my dad had a lot of issues with alcoholism and, you know, in hindsight, depression. Had been hospitalized for a year or two before that. Interestingly, when he was in the hospital, nobody ever talked about his depression. Nobody talked about his mental health. We were actually told, and I remember this, <laughs> we were actually told when we went to visit him in the hospital once that he had hemorrhoids. Wow. And at that age, I didn't even look at you know, what are hemorrhoids? And <laughs> the interesting part that always stood out with me then, I was, I'm, a, I'm an avid cyclist, do a lot of cycling. And I remember years ago from cycling, I'd get hemorrhoids from being on seat too long because I used to do Ironmans. And it would always bring me back to that time. 
and the feelings from that time that I would just have to you know, talk to my family doc about it and, and just sort of talk about the feelings I had from that for being told that he had hemorrhoids and then what's really going on with me. The confusion, yeah. Yeah. And you were told with all good intent to protect you, but it confuses things even more. Oh, absolutely. So so it's really quite interesting. And even at a, at a point, my dad was in, uh, although we grew up in Marathon, Thunder Bay's about three hours west of Marathon, and he was in what was then called the Lakehead Psychiatric Hospital for probably three, four months. And even then, we didn't have much contact with him at that time. So it was really an isolation. You know, I see it in hindsight that he was incredibly isolated from the family, which was without question the most important thing to him. So how did living then in a small town where you knew everybody and, you know, I would assume very tight-knit how did that community rally around your family? How did it shift things with your mom and your siblings? Rally around? Certainly not that. When my dad died, first of all, uh, when we found out, uh, so all of the kids in the family, you know, I really think my dad had planned the timing of it uh, because we were all out of town. Uh, myself and my brother were at a basketball tournament up in a town three hours away called Geraldton. Uh, my oldest sister was in a first-year college in Thunder Bay. Uh, another sister was at a swim meet. Another sister was at a volleyball tournament. But I remember when I first heard about it, uh, it was from a teacher and coach and an older cousin who broke it to myself and my brother at the, the basketball tournament in Geraldton. They took us into a classroom and told us what had happened. And, you know, so much about, you know, talk about trauma and impact. It was just so immediate that my world just ended. But then I remember going into this phase, okay, yeah, this has happened. We'll get through the basketball tournament, then we'll go home. And, you know, I didn't know what to expect. Didn't know. I wasn't really thinking. <laughs> and I remember teachers' reactions like, no, that's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is essentially what they had. They had arranged for the OPP to bring us home, myself, my brother, and uh, two really good friends. And we shuttled between, this was about a three-hour drive, which made it very short going with the OPP. I remember that. And we'd transfer cars every 70 or 80 kilometers or so. But I remember the last transfer going into Marathon that shit just got real. Like it was real. I, I knew this police officer. He knew my dad. Everything was different now. There was your life before that and the life after. Yeah, at that point, because the other officers that we were with didn't know my dad, didn't know my family, didn't know me or my siblings or all of this connectivity. Uh, but this guy did, and the, just I remember the discussion, whatever it might have been, I just remember the emotions and the feelings being totally different and then showing up home in this reality. But the reality was a lot of disconnect. Um, there's blame and shame on my mother, um, and I remember that being said. I remember it was a big winter in northern Ontario, and my dad also, with the service stations, he also sold snowmobiles. So we had access to snowmobiles all the time. And that was one of the pieces that I used as sort of my escape. And I remember when I came to socially with my friends, I really didn't come out for a week or two. And when I did, it was at a party that the friend was having. And nobody talked about my dad there, but clearly the emotion with everybody was present. And I remember returning to school, and I talk about this often, is that when I returned to school, nobody talked about it. I found out probably 25 years later that my classmates were told to not talk about it. And through a process of work that I've done in the last 10 years, I've actually learned from those friends the impact of my dad's suicide on their lives 
and what the, how they carried in, in, in friendships and communication. It's fascinating because I never looked at the impact on other people, other than my siblings, of course, and my mom, but the impact and the ripples were, were massive. Yeah, and the opportunities for bonding that were stolen from everyone. Well, in, it's stolen, but almost set aside. I remember I did a talk when I started the, the work that I do do in suicide in uh, locally. I did a, a talk with Children's Aid, and at the end, a good friend of mine that I grew up with is one of the directors, and she came up to give me a thank you. And she'd said before she did this, she said, before I just got this thank you gift, I want to tell you my story. And she essentially went back and talked about being at that basketball tournament and being there when she learned and she talked about this being one of the biggest impacts on her life, but not being able to do anything about it and even being told not to talk about it took away the ability to communicate. And here's a woman who now has a master's or PhD in, in, in social work, and she's a director with Children's Aid, and her message to everybody in the room is who were predominantly social workers is this was wrong. What we need to do, and when you're in circumstances where difficult things come up, they need to be talked about. Uh, you know, we need to be open with it. We need to reach out. We need to be vulnerable. We need to be authentic and caring and compassionate. And the lessons she learned and took into her life and, and career were, were immense. But at this time, for her to share this with me, I up until that point, I had not really considered the impact on my peers around me. And it was such a supportive thank you gift for me and a changed perspective on a lot of things. Do you think it's instinctual for us to want to reach out and want to connect, but then our culture and our society is telling us to doubt that and that that instinct is wrong? I think we're in this battle for a compassionate emotional response and our need in this world to have the answers. So I think when it came to my dad, it was when blame and shame come in, it's a human need to have the answers. So if I can blame somebody, there's the answer. What was being accused is that my mom wasn't a great human being and she was mean and so bad relationships, so it's her fault. Okay, that somehow made others feel good. In the complexity, they try to simplify it and want an answer so that they don't have to deal with the emotion that fails them and the questions and the unanswered questions. And they don't have to look deep enough at my dad, and I think this is where the answers truly lie, is that we get the opportunity to look deeper into my dad, what was really going on. And I think where it becomes meaningful and real is realizing the feelings that he was going through and what he was going through was probably quite universal, especially within men. And that gets personal. So it becomes not about my dad anymore, but about me as a human being and stuff that I go through and, and my emotions. And that brings us to a new place. So it's really not about my dad or what he did or didn't do uh, because we'll never have those answers. And, and the other thing I find too, and a, you know, a couple of dear friends over time really helped me with this, is that even today I'll look at my partner Chris. Her dad is around the same age as my dad, and I see him in his 80s. And, you know, my tendency in the past would have been to kind of follow what would have been my dad's projected path in life. Whereas a good friend of mine would say, your dad was an auto body mechanic. He was dealing with chemicals. Let's consider, you know, there's a likelihood he could have or would have had cancer. So we tell ourselves stories about my dad that gives him a lifelong <laughs> life, you know, another 40, 50, 60 years, but we don't consider, and you know, it's, it's helped me that he may have died of cancer a couple of years later. 
but how it changes our lives. And I think a lot of that is accepted my dad and you know, it's that present moment. What times did I have with him? Where was he at? And, and even the concept of what is suicide prevention? How do we prevent this? What do we do? Is it preventable? What, like all the different pieces, which I find is really fascinating, especially in the work that I ended up choosing to do. That it's preventable and possible on the scale of cancer and other things that may take our lives. Well, I think the prevention component, and, and I've really gotten into tearing that apart in the last 10 years, is so multifaceted. Everything that we do in life, if I were to find what is suicide prevention, it's everything. Because what is suicide? Suicide is we've lost our want to live. A pain has exceeded our want to live. Often when we look at suicide prevention, I see that we focus on two areas. One, when somebody dies by suicide. Oh, what could we have done? And we really tear that apart. And the other one is crisis. Oh my God, we got to save this person. But I think what we need to do is keep going backwards in it. That suicide prevention is not actually about suicide. It's about the issues that lead up to someone who wanting to not live. What are those issues? And keep tearing those apart. When we look at relationships, especially with men, because we see the data on so high with men, is that, you know, I always say to young couples, date night is suicide prevention. <laughs> Do we want to label it as that? No, but it is. Is these really solid getting together with meaningful relationships in your lives and holding on to those. And not necessarily holding on to those because we have to grasp because relationships come and go in our lives. And that's not just okay, it's natural. But being present with... Recognizing the moments. Yes, yeah. And again, I could put suicide prevention on all of these pieces. Why? Because it's wellness. Wellness is suicide prevention. A lot of stuff as we'll talk about is my treatments for PTSD is also everything we ought to be doing preventatively, not just as firefighters or first responders because of PTSD, but just because of life. We have to bring this path backwards is that this is about making life worth living. Yeah. And I definitely want to work up to that in the work that you're doing currently, but let's step back to athletics because you mentioned the basketball tournament. So other sports you were doing as a kid and then uh, eventually when you left marathon. So walk me mm -hmm. from that point on. Well, sports-wise for me, I was, I mean, if ADHD was a diagnosis when, we, when I was that age, I would have been diagnosed. <laughs> um, essentially, I remember myself being this hovering helicopter all the time, just go, 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 go. Marathon was a small town, but in the late 70s, uh, mid to late 70s, they built a swimming pool in Marathon. And I, to this day, say it saved my life, becoming the competitive swimmer. I really needed aerobic training. I was swimming four or five hours a day at one point. And it's the only time that I actually ever calmed down. So what that did for me, you know, I played on high school team sports like basketball and volleyball. Never much of a hockey player uh, like my dad. To me, it was just too violent. Um, and so I wasn't drawn to that. Uh, I was, you know, a pacifist by nature. But the aerobic sport thing when I jumped in the pool was, okay, this is it. And I could go for hours and, you know, my body would feel better. I didn't know exactly what it was doing to me at the time, but it was one thing that I stuck with. So I did quite well as a competitive swimmer. And then I was running more. I remember a high school principal was also the cross-country coach. And he came up to me one day and he said, uh, the regional cross-country championships are like next week. And I want you to run with us. I said, okay. I hadn't been training with them, but because of my swimming, I could go do it, and I ended up doing quite well. 
So it's these interesting pieces. It opened up the door to aerobic activity. When I left Marathon to head out west, triathlon was just starting to get big, and it was a natural fit for me. And having all three sports fit my absolutely need to match my energy. So aerobic sport was really big for me. So you mentioned how after you would finish training or swimming or running, you would feel better. But even though that feeling better was in the background, what was on the front of your mind when you thought about sport? When it comes to aerobic sport, one of the things I was able to do is accept my physical limitations. Swimming has a way of doing that is that because it's all time-based. You are who you are. So I did okay. I was a sort of a lower A swimmer. I wasn't going to do anything in, in career-wise with swimming. But at the same time, I was very good. But what stood out to me the most, especially with swimming, and again, in context of growing up in a town like Marathon where everybody knew you and, you know, there's complexity that came with that that wasn't always positive, is swimming to me was like an escape. And it was almost like a meditation. Being in the water was being away from everything. And... It had this sound and feel that was so different in this hypnotic almost pace and breathing. You know, when I think of how I use controlled breathing today and I think of a swimmer, I was doing that every day for hours. Um, So it was that being in the water, the isolation. And I had a mind, a creative mind that would just fly all the time. Uh, And so it was a place for me to have thoughts, uh, deal with what was going on in my life, or just be in my head. So it was kind of an escape as well, emotional escape of being in the water. The performance side, I was drawn to it, but at the same time, my need was to push me as far as I could go and not necessarily beat somebody else or win. There was winning that came with it, but that's not what really motivated me. Have you tried floating? Yeah, actually, uh, floating, I did, uh, when I was going to school, when I did my paramedic program in Windsor, oh, that was back in the 80s, and my brother's girlfriend, who lives in St. Catharines at the time, her family had a float tank. Wow. Yeah, exactly, in the 80s, like this is 1987, and they essentially had said to me, oh yeah, you can come anytime. I'd watched, uh, did you ever see the film Altered States? No. It just takes you off in a different world. And uh, first time I tried floating, it was like, this is amazing. And uh, I'd go back all the time. And, and there's a local float uh, place here in Thunder Bay that I've not tried yet, but uh, yeah. Yeah, the contrast between you talking about the stimuli from swimming, right, and the movements and all the different sounds that made me think of the stillness of floating and then maybe how that contrasted in your mind. Being in water is always, and, and even as life has gone on, it's always a place for me that is not just safe in its way, but it's but a sense of freedom and, and just really being and expressing. And I love to play in the water. And my two sons, who are now 20 and 22, grew up with, you know, in the water and became competitive swimmers as well. And, and it's interesting to hear from them how they talk about being in the water. And it's from the time that we had when they were very young in the pool and we'd just play. And it really is about that. So what eventually drove you to leave Marathon and, and why out west when you could have gone anywhere? What was the draw? Well, for me, a couple of sides to that is growing up in Marathon, there's a lot of, like I said, talked about the alcoholism level. Um, there's a lot of things that weren't good about the town socially. Um, and I had this feeling since probably I was about 12 years old. And, and I remember that feeling. I just wanted to get out. Not knowing exactly why, being able to articulate that, but knowing that I did, and not just out to Thunder Bay or out to Southern Ontario, 
go. It was this, and maybe it was just in my nature. So I want to. So remember late, and I and, and I talk about this when I do youth groups and talk about youth and how how when you get to grade eleven and you know and people start saying, "What are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do with your life?" <laughs> And I really didn't know. And I remember being, I think it was late grade 11, uh, walking home from a swim practice and a police car drove by. I saw this police car and I thought, I could do that. So the next time somebody asked me the question, what are you going to do with your life? I said, I'm going to be a cop. Well, Scott, they stopped asking me the question. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that I actually wanted to do it. It essentially shut people up. They're like, oh, he's sorted. Yeah. So it's like, okay, done. So I said, this is great. I got people off my back. And so I searched out uh, criminology programs, and I found one in Calgary that was far enough away from me. And I had made that plan, and it was interesting. I had said that I wanted to do this before my dad had died, and it was February of that, my grade 12 year, that he had died. So things were in place for me to go out west. And uh, here I was 17 years old. I didn't go to grade 13. 17 years old. I'm a December baby. My dad had died in February, and what, five months later, I'm heading out to this city from this town of 2,500, 2,400 to Calgary, which was probably 800,000 at the time, and just showed up when I knew one person in the city. But it was this, I needed to get away, needed to go somewhere and do something. In hindsight, especially with the impacts of the trauma of losing my dad to suicide, I was really lost. I didn't know, you know, I look at my two sons now, 2022, 20, it's like, wow. I was a couple of years younger than that, and I was out on my own, and you know, I try to play out the scenario in my head. How would I have been when I look at them and take me out of the picture? Wow. It's hard to imagine where I was at. So getting there and not knowing anyone, and you've chosen this career path without really knowing what was involved, but it got you there. Did the structure of the school, was that sort of your locus? Then did you lock into that, and the staff there and the students, were they sort of your initial contact with people? Yeah, it was what really I found probably most, and I'd say it's profound, is that the profs that I had, one, I had to do an interview before I went out, and it was after my dad had died. So they all knew that I'd just lost my dad to suicide. And all my profs were sociology profs, psych profs. They had me doing papers on suicide. They had me essentially talking about it. So I thought this was normal. I thought that everything I was doing was school-related, right? And a few of them had taken me under their wing, and I didn't notice, I didn't know what it meant to be a university student, but what they were doing is, essentially, it was almost a clinical approach of getting me, and you know, it was a form of cognitive behavioral therapy by getting me to talk and write about it and write about my feelings. So I think, although I never had any professional help after I lost my dad to suicide, which is one of the biggest things I advocate for, is I really did. So I began this process. So your question about me being focused on school, I don't think I was that focused on school because I was dealing with my emotional stuff and not just of losing my dad to suicide, but this life that I grew up in marathon, family dynamics, and then now what are you doing with your life? And and it wasn't even that. I was just living in the moment. But it was the process that I had that were really most helpful. One of the things I learned when I got to Calgary pretty quickly, and it was within the first few months, there's no chance that I wanted to be a cop because I had met people who really wanted to be cops. And I thought, no, this is not the place for me. (laughs) Uh, Doing criminology, you know, the psych stuff was, but it wasn't really. I learned quickly that 
I might be good for this work, but this work is probably not good for me. So I continued with the program, but ended up not finishing it over the couple of years. But it was a good piece for me and for where I was at in my life. So coming from the town where no one talked about it and you weren't interacting with anybody about it, and then going to Calgary, it's a complete world shift population-wise, stimulus-wise. Now all of a sudden... The perspective on that loss is different. Were you quickly interacting with people back home in a different way because of that? Were you communicating that shift back home? No, I think a lot of my stuff back home, the only real communications I was having was probably with my media family. And it was all telephone, right? It wasn't an internet or email or texting time. So it was telephone calls, which were expensive at the time. So it wasn't a lot, but what I do remember is getting into that it wasn't really about my dad. So because I was at a time in my life, and this is when I look back on it, this is what I believe it to be, is that I moved away from everybody. So my dad, actually, once I moved away from Marathon after probably six or eight months in Calgary, having my dad die was similar to leaving Marathon. I was leaving everybody. And so the impact of my dad after I left and went to Calgary didn't seem as great as it would have been if I was around everybody. So essentially, I left my mother, right? I left my siblings, I left my friends, and I left my dad. So I don't think the impact was as great because I was in Calgary. I was doing my own thing. You know, one of the things that I had this habit of doing is when I had fears, one of the fears that I had as a kid was always a fear of heights. And so when I was out west, it's like, okay, what do you do? You have a fear of heights, how do you get rid of that? Well, I took up hang gliding and mountain climbing. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) So I started doing things. And because I had this such aerobic base, I ended up finding friends who were active. And what I got into this mode of, anytime somebody would say, hey, do you want to do fill in the blank, essentially? I said, yeah, okay. So I started doing a lot of running, starting to do triathlons. But climbing and skiing, it fed my essentially hyperactive ADHD needs that I was just doing a lot of activity. And interestingly, I didn't keep going with those things because it was after my fear of heights was gone and it didn't have as much of a draw to me anymore. It served its purpose. It really did. Did you physically oscillate between going back home to Marathon and back to Calgary? Yeah, so essentially my first two years, I was back to Marathon for summer jobs. The summer jobs were always good. So it's kind of back and forth for probably two or three years. And I'd go back and work-wise in Marathon. There's a lot of construction going on. So I worked in construction with the mines when they were being built. And I also picked up, because I was a lifeguard and swimming instructor, I had CPR and first aid. So one of the other opportunities that came up was somebody said, hey, why don't you become a volunteer ambulance attendant? And I was 20 years old, 19 years old at the time. And I thought, I can do that. I've got a class F driver's license. I've got first aid. So this fit, again, it was a good fit. So I started working as a volunteer ambulance attendant. In Marathon, in essentially the summers from about April to late August. Were you looking forward to going home or was it mixed feelings? Did you believe you just want to be back in Calgary when you went back? You know, at that point, I was getting a bit more settled in and I was comfortable with not knowing sort of where I'm going to end up, what I'm going to do. It was a lot of questions at the time. I was doing some really fun things and some things that I thought were growing to something, but I really didn't have a direction saying this is what I want to do. And that's one thing when I went back to Marathon working, especially working as an ambulance attendant is what we call them at the time, began to open my eyes 
a lot. And it's interesting when we put this label, a small town, quote, ambulance attendant, you think, when I think of my career, which we'll talk more about, but some of the, I would say, biggest, quote, when we're talking biggest calls of our careers, most memorable, like what really impacted us, mine are all from working there. A lot of them were suicides and, and a lot of trauma, a lot of blunt trauma. We're on a major highway, but also a lot of violence tied around alcohol. That is pretty extreme. But the difference was, is that I knew all the people involved and the emotional complexity was, as I look back on it, it's kind of mind boggling. Who let me do this? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, given your history and then how did you process that? Well, I think the part is, and even my oldest sister said to me last year, as we, were, as we had a great conversation, she said, but Scott, you were so good at this and we were so proud of you. And I was good. I had kind of found my niche without knowing it. He said, what I was good with was people. So I kept doing this and it's something that, you know, I just got drawn towards. But I remember doing a call, it was, I think I was 21, and it was this kid who had been sexually abused by a local pedophile, which is a whole other story, but it shows the complexity of dysfunction in this community. And his dad would actually berate him over it and blame him for it. And one night he just flipped and went after his dad with kitchen knives while he was sleeping. And this call took place over probably six or eight hours by the time his dad finally died. And this call, I was 21 years old, you know, going into a house as an ambulance attendant with police officers with guns out. Guns never came out of Marathon. When I look at my PTSD today, a lot of it goes back to that time. And so the complexity of working in a small town was immense. But what I kept getting back from people was, you're so good at this. Especially the last 10 years, I look back on this. I look at metaphor of the masks that we wear as first responders. This mask gets painted from both sides, that people will paint it from the outside and add layers to it, and we'll paint it from the inside and add layers to it, and it gets complex of who we really are. But through most of my career, when I look at the things that are done, I can look back as that I did good for people. So I don't remember a time where thinking, you know, I need to get out of this, I need to stop doing this, because it was, one, filling so many needs, but it needed to be done. So it's really complex working in a town that you knew everybody, the emotional complexity, as well as the impact of trauma. So because you had gotten out and now you had a new home in Calgary and then you've gone back into Marathon on the summers and you have even a deeper insight to the goings-on in the town, I'm sure it's not as binary as this, but this is why I'm asking. Do you have or did you have fond memories? Was it mixed with Marathon or was it very much like this is a dysfunctional place and your home in Calgary was seen as a more functional and grounded and safe space. Did you have that thought at all? Well, for me, and this probably speaks to the dysfunction, is that after my dad had died, I lost a sense of what home is. Although I went back to Marathon, and it's considered my hometown, my sense of belonging with Marathon is real disconnected. And it was from when my dad had died and the response socially to that, even within our family, not my siblings, my mom, but with my extended family, is that I felt a real disconnect. So the sense of what home is for me has often been confusing and has been part of my growth processes of home and what family means. To me, family is, you know, not necessarily blood, but it's people who are meaningful in your lives. So it's really that sense of home was really torn apart 
and probably not just because of my dad. There's issues that led up to my dad's suicide in that town. Um, so I think the complexity is just left me feeling that I wasn't grounded in a quote home anymore. So maybe that disconnect was what allowed you to operate back in that space mm-hmm. and in that realm. Yeah. It made it easy to go back to. And, and I think I was, was certainly getting things from it and trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. You know, there was a point where it's like, okay, well, what am I going to do? I was out West and somebody had suggested, why not look at paramedic programs? That seems to be what you're doing. And that's when I started looking at paramedic programs and leaned towards Ontario because they had a one-year program at the time. I thought, yeah, I can go to Southern Ontario for a year. And were you doing any work part-time while you were in Calgary before you went back to Ontario? Yeah, so some of the work that I was doing out west, I ended up doing this wilderness first aid course, which was quite, it was like a week-long course. And so I could work on ambulances in Alberta. So I started working in northern Alberta in an area town called Laclabish, very much like northern Ontario, uh, except with a lot of ranch land. So really opened my eyes to, again, this was the continuation of like working in a marathon, a small community, getting to know people. And what I started seeing there, it was at a time when there was communities using, for substance, they were using Xerox copier fluid and essentially in a punch bowl. And it went for about a month or two and it killed numerous people. So basically we went to a call one night of a bunch of unconscious people who had put Xerox copper fluid in a punch bowl and four of them had died and, and the weekend before three had died and so it was this real social almost epidemic. Again, very strange to walk into, but it showed the social aspect of what we were doing as paramedics and the impact. I remember young people in the room and just the emotional impact of that. But the more that I was doing with ambulance work and communities, I thought, okay, paramedics is the way to go. And so much that I'd done out west, it sort of gave me that direction to say, yeah, paramedics is probably a good choice for you. And I guess I'd also leveled a bit of the playing field for you to realize that these issues are not focused in your hometown. They're everywhere. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's what I was learning. And that was part of maturity as well, is realizing that there's a lot of issues that I was dealing with through my childhood. They're kind of everywhere. So then what was your process coming back to Ontario and the paramedic program? And where did you choose to land with that? I had applied to a few paramedic programs. And I remember uh, Windsor being the first one to accept me. So I just took it. And I was always like that. You know, basically, I'll put it out there wherever I get accepted, I'll go first. So I went to Windsor. And it was, <laughs> I'd never been to Windsor. <laughs> so it was an amazing contrast. It was just a completely different world for me. And I remember in my first couple of weeks thinking, I want out of here. You know, I left Calgary in the mountains and here I was in Windsor. A lot of automotive companies, chemical companies I'd run and I could feel the air in my skin. I thought, oh my God, this is gross. People would say, oh, Windsor will grow on you. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to anybody working on there. It's just a contrastive environment. Yeah. It's not hard to make the understanding that it's different from Calgary. It was so different. So I stuck out there and then met a couple of people in the paramedic program that I became close friends with. And we both did incredibly well in the program. And in the spring of coming out of that year, we both got hired in Windsor. So I worked there for the summer and it was full-time work, but it was only a contract. So I started applying for jobs. I thought, ah, I started looking west again. How am I going to get back out west? And I just made a phone call to Thunder Bay, and they said, uh, come up for an interview. So I flew up for an interview, and they offered me a job and said, you can start next week. So I flew back to Windsor, and 
packed up and drove to Thunder Bay. And my plan was when I hit Thunder Bay was, okay, I'll spend a year or two here, make some money, and uh, head back out west. You were really loving working as a medic, and I get the sense that it was the soft side of the job. Do you feel like you were embodying who you were, and it didn't necessarily feel like a job to you? Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. It was such a good fit for me. Everything that I, probably who I am or who I was at the time, and my greatest skills as a paramedic were always the people skills, is that, you know, I had to work really hard to learn protocols and nail my pathophysiologies. And I've always been a big picture thinker, so I had to think about systems and then go backwards. But it worked really well for me in the field. But it was connection with people. And I learned very early that my best assessments and my best care in the field is when I created connection with people because once they trusted me, once they connected with me, they're the ones that actually helped themselves. But that once that trust and that relationship was built, I could really do anything in the field and situations changed for the good usually really quickly because of that. And without it, uh, I don't think it could be done. And that's where I think my greatest skill in the field and with people was, and even partners that I had, would always say going in and connecting with human beings is what allows us to do our work. But if we go in and treat them as a protocol, you struggle through that all the time because there's a conflict of protocols versus human beings. And when we look at the human being, when we really connect with the human being and their fears and their anxieties, paramedics would make the best salespeople in the world because we create a relationship in minutes and get people to totally trust us to do anything. And we're really, really good at that because we need to. We need to create that trust and we can't just say, trust me. The actions that we do create that environment to do that, which allows us to do our jobs really, really well. It's a body language and an energy. It's a manifestation of the people don't remember what you did, but they remember how you made them feel. That's when they truly feel like you helped them. Yeah. And it's a commitment and it's authenticity and it's vulnerability. When I started my careers in the late 80s, 90s, we read lots about professional boundaries, professional boundaries. So this would be the antithesis of it, is breaking those professional boundaries and creating a relationship and really doing our job. And when you look at medicine and pre-hospital medicine, how it's changed, it really is, okay, we have to be careful going there, but we have to go there to get what we need. You can't treat a child from a protocol. What do we do with children? We hold them, we touch them. And when we do, they trust us. It's innate. And if we're actually working off a protocol, it doesn't work with kids. Why? Because they're too damn smart. And when we apply the same thing to older people, I always said to every paramedic student, always 100% of the time, kneel down, take a radio pulse, eye to eye. Even if you can't feel it, don't move. Don't let go of that hand because it's not about the pulse. <laughs> it's about connection and eye contact. And once you have that, then you can do anything. And watch what happens. That's the piece. But we were taught to buffer. A, you won't be able to think rationally. And B, it'll impact you emotionally afterwards if you humanize and connect. But it's more complex than that. It's more complex or it's more simple. To walk into somebody's bedroom at 3 o'clock in the morning and ask them to tell you their story is the most vulnerable time in their lives. And you're asking for the greatest authenticity. And if you can't in any way meet it or be willing to go there, and it's almost just a willingness to go there, not necessarily going there as a medic, but the willingness. Once you have that willingness, if you need to go there, you will and can, and you have the, quote, strength to do it, then you are able to do this job because this person trusts you and the people around them trust you. And then you can really implement those protocols. 
Yeah, I think we're close. I think this is where we're going. The realization that integrating really you as a whole person into your job and the soft skills and the practical skills, that's where the best first responders are. That's where the healthiest ones are. But we haven't been really true to teaching that over the years. We're almost avoidant of it to deal with our own stuff. It's scary to look at ourselves, to truly begin to look at ourselves. And so what our natural tendency is to avoid that and cover it with something else. It does begin at that base level. That's really where the training would begin in and of yourself and then working forwards towards being at that call with people. It's interesting to begin to tear that apart, what we're actually doing. The soft skills really came naturally, but you had to work hard at protocols. I would also agree with that's been true with me. But you did choose to push and progress your skills along the way. So talk to me about on the academic side of that job. How was that for you? When I got to Thunder Bay, and maybe this was a marathon connection too, the air ambulance system was created kind of the late 70s, early 80s. And so I got used to seeing the helicopter come into Marathon and working with them when I was working as a quote volunteer ambulance attendant in Marathon kind of stirred something in me. So when I was working in Thunder Bay with a land ambulance, I started full-time in 1988. Within my first year, I was talking to them at air ambulance about how to get on there. You know, I really enjoyed the land ambulance stuff because call volume was different. It was a different service working air ambulance. So I wanted to work land, but I also wanted to work part-time air. And so... I created relationships with the base manager there, and within a couple of years, by 1990, I was also working part-time air ambulance. It was at a time where it was kind of the start of the surge of the growth of the industry for paramedics into more training, more professional qualifications, and it was really air ambulance systems in the province were leading that way because they needed critical care flight paramedics to work in these extended care areas. Essentially, in Northern Ontario, our flight times one way were between an hour, hour and a half. Some of them were shorter, but you've got your patients for a long period of time. So that really drove the need for much greater training. And once I started working air ambulance, I was in a place where the learning was immense. Opportunities to take ACLS at the time, advanced cardiac life support, pediatric advanced life support, now. Um, the advanced trauma life support. Everything was being pushed from base hospitals is that we we're doing all of the, the training that they were opening up to the physicians. At the very least, we could audit and be a part of, and that's what they wanted. The base hospital docs were really innovative, progressive. They were leading the way in pre-hospital care. I would argue in the world at the time. I remember our base hospital physician, uh, Dr. Terry Truesdale, who really was kind of the pioneer of the air ambulance system in Ontario, had been seconded to Australia to set up their system. And really fundamentally, it was a system that was based on here you have this vast area of communities that were driving distance an hour apart, and many of them remote indigenous communities. Putting hospitals in all these communities was just unaffordable. Uh, some people would have argued the cost of the air ambulance system, but it was far less expensive than hospitals in all the communities. And so that's what really drove that system. And so the training that was required for medics. The other part about working in the air ambulance system was being part of a flight crew. At the time, Canadian Helicopters was contracted to the Ministry of Health. Incredible company, incredible people within the company who had a passion for flying, a passion for safety, and it was not just ingrained, it was lived. And the teams that were created, it was phenomenal because 
once you took off, you're landing in places where the pilots needed to help you. You had to help with navigation. Like safety was everybody's job. You know, everybody knew what their job was, but it was all about this team and getting this team home safely. And we saw later in years when systems changed that so did safety, like the Moose factory crash. So it was really as part of a system that was not just innovative, not just growing in training, but I'm quite honored when I look back to be part of that team and part of that system in Ontario that really saw this massive change in the 90s. So I worked 88 to 92 as a full-time medic, land-based medic. In 1990, I started as an air ambulance paramedic. But in 1992 is when I moved over to fire and when I applied to Thunder Bay Fire Service. And in 1992 is when I got on. My career was in a lot of areas at the time as a first responder. And what led to that shift? Well, that's a really interesting one and probably somewhat different than what brings most people to the fire service is I had never really thought about being a firefighter, in all honesty. It's just something that wasn't on my radar, which in hindsight is I was perfectly suited for it. But what happened with me is that I think this shows my passion for being a paramedic is I had an amazing paramedic partner. His name was Paul. We're still good friends to this day. And our management at ambulance wasn't that great at the time. And they had split up all the crews just because. And we were one of those. We had been together for about two and a half years, and we worked incredibly well together. Paul's skills contrasted mine really, really well. Like I say, I was more the touchy-feely, you know, and he was by the book protocols. And just the contrast of who we are as human beings made us an amazing team. And we really knew that. And I remember when they split us up, I was pretty angry disgruntled and and so he told me one day he says yeah i'm gonna go write the fire exam tonight and i said really i said when is it what time he said seven o'clock it was at the university he says i'm gonna go too (laughs) (laughs) which again a lot of people who have done a lot of work to become firefighters won't like this story but i guess all the skills that i had going into it really i had more than what i knew and so a year later i'd gotten on to Thunder Bay Fire. I remember weeks before I started October 5th, 1992. And I remember feeling like I was making a mistake. I remember phoning Paul because he had actually gotten on fire six months before me. And I said, Paul, I just, I don't know. I've got this feeling. He says, that's okay. It'll be okay. This is a good move for you. So I trusted him. And sure enough, it turned out to be a perfect fit for all my skills from everything I'd done in my life up to that point. I remember my first night shift and for the first few hours being treated, and I really mean this, first few hours being treated like a rookie, but it was probably two or three in the morning when we had the call and it was essentially an EMS call. And I forget exactly what the call was, but I remember I was needed. My skills were needed. And what I learned was that I was never treated like a rookie because my skills were so needed. And I think at the time with fire services, transitioning to more EMS in the 90s. It was a time, and there's very few paramedics, especially in Thunder Bay, there's only two or three of us at the time. So we had skills that were needed, and other firefighters at the time saw EMS worker working with people as really vulnerable. It wasn't a comfortable place for a lot of firefighters at the time. So I think I was treated very, very differently as a rookie. I was working in the area, and we had this call out to Sleeping Giant Provincial Park that has amazing hiking and a lot of cliffs. And the call was for a woman. She had fallen about 50 feet. Turned out she had fractured her hip and femur. 
But as we were about to fly out to it, we had connected with Thunder Bay Fire because we were asking about their high angle team, whether we could access them because we thought we would need it. And sure enough, they were doing training. So they met us at one of the hospital helipads and three guys jump on with all the gear. And it's guys that I had just worked with last week. I'm the rookie, right? (laughs) Rookie fire guy. Now I'm in the helicopter teaching them flight safety on the way over what we're going to do, what we're not going to do. So what I thought was amazing about how this call unfolded was this was about human beings and skills, not rank, not I know more than you. We were in a situation where we had to work together. We were in an isolated area. Everybody laid out essentially on the table here's my skills, here's my skills, here's my skills. How do we do this? What do we do? And it went incredibly well. We landed on the top of this cliff, essentially, and there happened to be a photographer. They photographed the whole thing. It was really cool. And we do this rescue that took a couple hours, brought them up, loaded them on the helicopter. And once we loaded the patient, the firefighters had to stay behind and take out other gear. Well, they're like a two-hour hike out to get the gear out. Whereas we just took off back to the hospital, of course, we flew out. But that contrast changed how my role within the fire service, and I think for a lot of people it wasn't comfortable, and it's something that really required integrity at the time. I remember this because often when I was working on a helicopter, I'd end up with calls within the city working with firefighters, and it had to be handled right. And I knew it at the time, and it was about integrity and doing our jobs without threatening or taking a power of play on anybody. But it progressed in a very credible way. Yes, you got fast-tracked, but you were showing you could be trusted, you could be depended on, you were valued and had something to bring to the team. So there wasn't that feeling out period that needed to happen. One of the things that I noticed is that what happened, and it's interesting when we look at it from a trauma perspective, is that from an early point, they trusted my skills and what we're doing, is that any time I was working as a firefighter, when the worst things happened when it came to people is when I was called upon the most. So I was exposed to an inordinate amount of trauma because of the work that I did as a paramedic that was using my skills. Any good scene commander would say, you want people to do tasks that have skill in the task. That's appropriate. And when I look back on it, I remember a call that a kid had burnt himself, literally doused himself and lit the match, ended up dying a few days later. But fire was first on the scene. So myself and and another guy who happens to be one of the deputy chiefs today, and as he hit the ground, he said, please help me. I remember the call so vividly. And from there, the paramedics came and the paramedics said to me, you need to come with us because we just done this major burn unit training in Toronto a couple of weeks prior to it with some of the base hospital docs and some land paramedics. And they said, you need to come with us because you know what you're doing. Then we got to the hospital and I remember Graydon Thorne, he was a physician and he said to me, I want you to stay. We just did this a couple of weeks ago. The nurses don't know it as well. So here I was as a rookie firefighter in the back of an ambulance and at the hospital, and five hours later, I was leaving the hospital. My boundaries of who I was and my role and what it was and where and when was all over the place. And in hindsight, when I look back on this, it was not good. When I look at my PTSD today and where it came from and how, it was always in this unknown place. So yeah, we had protocols. We had SOPs. We had all this stuff. But when things really happened, it's, okay, I need you to do this. I need you to do this. Which opened you up to being exposed to a lot more? A 
lot more and in a precarious emotional time. So the complexity in it. But again, I was really good at what I did. And it's not to bless sunshine up my own ass. It's just that I cared. And I could see what was happening because a lot of the personal relationships I had outside of fire and EMS and, you know, a number of them were emerged docs. And we had these incredible conversations. It was time when the OPAL study was on and the transition to tiered response for fire services. And even in the transition of ambulance control from the province to the municipalities, uh, you know, I think it was Kitchener-Waterloo had hired a bunch of paramedics as firefighters because we didn't know who was going to be running the paramedic services. But the reality was is that these jobs that we do, this integrated approach to first response gave the best possible community care that even when they went into the OPAL study, we'd looked at studies in the past. Seattle had done these studies already, and so did Dallas, Texas, and the outcomes. We knew what they were going to be with the cardiac. We knew what the trauma was going to be, that it's response time to hospitals, that quick care changes. And sure enough, that's what the OPAL study showed, and not that the paramedics like that, but it showed the importance of an integrated first response system of when we have firefighters and paramedics working together. And we need everybody, by the way, <laughs> if we looked at the studies and looked at the best possible system to give the best possible care in communities, it's the system that we have right now. We just need to work better together. When it does, we give that best possible care. And I think that's what the world that I was living in because I knew the paramedics, we could come back to each other and say, we gave that patient the best possible chance to live. That's what we're about. Having worked just a number of years part-time as a primary care medic, there's a couple of things I want to touch on. I want to start with what you were just saying about the tiered response, because I think still to this day, there's still a lot of animosity between the services about if more money was poured into the ambulance service and more trucks and more medics were on the road, then we wouldn't need fire. That fire is basically seen as, no pun intended, but band-aid on the system. And having gone through school, I even felt like that was the vibe or the message that was sort of arcing through the whole thing, being a firefighter and then being in school to become a medic, I was picking up on this. So I just wanted your take on that. It's just an interesting perspective for you to shine a light on. What I learned throughout my career, I think when we look at the system that you're talking about, one, from a fire perspective, response times to fires, residential and commercial matters. So the reality is fire stations are not going to close. We have minimum manning. I'll use Thunder Bay for an example of our four-man pumpers. Minimum manning is in place. Response time is a fact. There's higher risk, and whether it's through insurance cost or loss of lives, it's inevitable it's going to happen. We see that. The fire science behind it is solid. It's not political. It's real. And it can be tied to dollars and cents, and insurance companies will charge more money. So firefighters aren't going anywhere. When it comes to the tiered response system and paramedics, the reality is paramedics aren't going anywhere either. So when I look at pre-OPAL, so I look at my career as a paramedic, before I went to fire, it was myself and my partner, Paul, who would go to a cardiac arrest in a basement. There was two of us. And I kind of anecdotally look at what were the chances of survival of this patient. Well, quite frankly, they were very low. Why? Because we need to move this patient. We need to get the stretcher, get the equipment, shovel the snow, and then get to the hospital. The outcomes for this patient were not good. And then we moved into a tiered response system by simply having firefighters for others come to a call, do tasks that they could do. One, create a safer working environment. For the first time as a paramedic, they could now focus on the primary role as a paramedic, which is assessment and patient care. Before that, without those firefighters or without those other human beings, we'll put whatever label on it you want, but right now we're going to call them firefighters. It's less safe and you have more work to do as a paramedic. 
And when a paramedic can walk in and begin to do their jobs for what they're well-trained to do and they're right with that, the patient outcome potential becomes much, much greater. So we have a safer system because two paramedics walking into dark houses, we know how communication works with dispatch. You don't have to work long in the field to realize, you know, it's not that dispatchers are bad people or not bright people. They are. It's simple human communication that tells you it doesn't matter what you hear from a dispatcher. You're going into a place of unknown. So it's unsafe. And having more people there makes it safer. So that's the pre-area of the OPAL study. Then the OPAL study, which clearly showed that response time and effective CPR and early DFib. Now we're getting technical. Makes a difference. It's not the firefighters can do the job in lieu of paramedics. It's that working together in specific cardiac does make a difference. And there's all the peripheral study was cardiac and trauma, but the field of paramedicine is far greater than those two specific areas. So working together, what I found is that what I would do with past colleagues, you know, here I'd show up as a firefighter, I'd get in, and because I had the skill, I could do an assessment. And when the next paramedic, and a number of times, one of the guys I worked with at AIR also worked land, he would come in. His name was Rob, Rob Plummer, just a brilliant paramedic. And he could now lead off where I finished. So I could give him a report, then he could start from there. So it's not starting from the beginning. And then we could work together but he now is taking over and he has control. And there was probably four or five times where Rob or I would call each other a couple hours later. And what we would say is, one, we gave the best possible chance for this person to live. This person got the best possible care that we could give. And the scene was safe for everybody involved. And what we talk about is like, now, how do we take this instead of Rob and Scott and make it a generic system that firefighters can do this assessment and paramedics, and we can create professional relationships with paramedics so that they can lead off from this point. The fear in the system is the politics, is that here we had a system with two paramedics, and now we had four firefighters and two paramedics that are safer, better care, because we live in a world of finance and budget, is, well, if that works, why not get firefighters to do more work? And so I can see ideas that have been pushed out there that say, we're just going to put an ambulance in a fire hall and we have a fire truck. If an ambulance call comes in, two of the firefighters take the ambulance and two take the fire truck. And we go do this call. Now we have four. Well, we've moved from two to six and now we're moving to four and probably a bit less care. But you know what? Politically, and it's okay. And we know that we'll come to a point that they'll say, wait, why are we sending that truck? If we only need two people, why are we wasting the money on the gas and the wear and tear on that big truck? We can send the ambulance and we'd move to that. So now we've gone from 1990 to maybe 10 or 15 years later with two more people back on. We've gone through this perfect system that I see the tiered response system has. And now we have two again. And then we're going to start doing these amazing studies to put millions of dollars into a study and say, wait, why aren't we having good patient outcomes? And we'll do another study <laughs> that says, hey, we need more people. What I haven't seen yet is saying when we started the tier to response system, it was the best possible system for patients. And firefighters and paramedics coming together to say that is where I think it is. It's that right now we're leaving paramedics working in fear because who's the most powerful group? Well, it's firefighters. Not only are we massively powerful and political, but the response time is a fact. We're not going to lose fire halls. That can be fought all we want. I don't see that happening. So how do we create the best possible care? And I think this system is what it is. And we can't say we're going to wait for another study. No, we need to work together in the best possible care. And I think firefighters can take a greater role, understanding that we come from a place of greater power and saying, 
this is the best possible care for patients. But at the same time, paramedics, they're left vulnerable. But you really have to believe in your patient care that I gave them the best possible care today. And if we call patients my partner, my sons, my family, that's what I want. Paramedics want a fire station within four to eight minutes to their home. They want that. One of the studies that I did when I was doing my criminology is what if crime prevention started to work? Well, we'd start cutting service. And what we have to understand politically and from a community perspective, and I think this is really hard to manage, is our greatest goal as taxpayers in a community is to have our first responders do nothing. If that's our greatest goal, I think we could all agree on that, right? Because then everything's working. But what happens budget-wise, the flawed human beings that we are saying, well, if they're doing nothing, then we can cut them. <laughs> then when we cut them, we go back to needing them. <laughs> so we have to find a place where we're okay with this and not keep measuring is that, yes, fire safety works, 911 works, communication works, our faster response times works, our greater training works, just like paramedicine, greater care does work. The OPAL study can say that we don't need advanced cardiac life support, but it is beneficiary sometimes, and we can see that does make a difference in the field. So we have to almost take all this, believe in it, and make a conscious choice not to cut it when budgets get tight. And when we change governments, they're saying, look, these guys are sitting around doing nothing. Or even inside a department itself, well, then we're just going to fill their time with other divisions' work to keep them busy because we're paying them as opposed to treating them basically like a soldier. You know, soldiers aren't always needed to fight wars, but they should be training to be soldiers the rest of the time. So that time can be filled with training to be a firefighter. So when the time does come, even though the times are less frequent, you are getting the highest quality and the safest possible service you can have. Yeah. And I think, too, when we fundamentally look at the evidence is that when we started doing defibrillation in the early 90s, and this was as a paramedic, and remember, such a big change. Oh, my God, this is a delegated medical act. Doctors were saying, we can't do this. We're going to kill people. And when we finally did, they were saying that early defibrillation was going to save 15% of the people. And what we found was it was around 2 to 3%. Well, the reason they said 3%, because Laredell did the studies of Seattle that has a 50% citizen CPR rate. And this is looking at things, instead of looking at the firefighters' needs or the paramedics' needs, if we look at this from the community need and making definitive, essentially, social change, that one really got me. We put millions of dollars into the OPAL study and for advanced cardiac, and it didn't show them what they wanted it to, I think. And that's being judgmental on my side, of course, but that's what I saw play out. If we were working for the patients collaboratively, we would look at this data and say, hmm, if our roles are about saving lives, and I thought about this when they built two new fire halls in Thunder Bay over the last six or eight years, is why don't we build a classroom onto these fire halls and offer free CPR classes? If our role is to have an impact in the community and we're working off data, Saddle has proven that let's teach everybody in CPR. What I find with the real answers when it comes to first responders and community impact and changing communities is that that's not sexy enough. It's not cool enough. And we have to get off that. It's kind of what got us into the OPAL studies thinking advanced care paramedics, ACLS, it sounds really good of the most successful cardiac calls I've done, early CPR, anecdotally, but the data supports that as well. It's like fire safety programs. Why? Because they make a difference. All these seemingly small things, but we can only do that when we feel grounded and safe in jobs and supporting our families and the work that we do, and we feel appreciated. 
and we know that we're doing good work. That's what I think we have to work towards to stop this fighting. And we're even teaching paramedics this in schools. And I've heard it here, different places. And it's easy to say, oh, they're jaded. It's like, okay, where's this feeling coming from? Why do they feel insecure? Because that's not cool to have our paramedics feeling that way. Another piece, thinking back to closer to the end of my career as a flight paramedic, was myself and actually two other firefighters out of Toronto, because they were working as a paramedics out of Buttonville Air Ambulance. We had the opportunity at Michener to write the OPALS exams. They were looking at allowing us to do the OPALS training, which had, at the time, we're talking 1998, potential to change everything for firefighter paramedics in the province. And I remember being at Michener and somebody coming in to talk to us on our second day asking us to stop because if we did do this, we would be the first advanced care firefighter paramedics in the province and they didn't think that that was a good idea to do. And all of us immediately said, oh, you're right. We don't want to take anybody's job. We don't want to be the ones to have this tipping point to say, look, they can do it. Look at this. We are in such unique situations with our training that was not indicative of the fire service as a whole. And I didn't think it was a wise move to create that risk. And using us as examples, look what you can do. The reality, you couldn't do that. We just had careers that aligned in a way that put us in these spots that gave us unique opportunities to serve our communities. That's an interesting perspective because I was going to make a general statement, and I will just for the sake of discussion, that when firefighters and paramedics interview and they say, I want to help people, I think maybe we have a different thought on what help people means. So generally, I think in the fire services, I want to cut the car, I want to throw the water, I want to find the patient, I'll drag them, I'll lift them, I'll move them, I'll deliver them. But I don't necessarily want eye-to-eye contact and vulnerability and make connection and get to know them. Whereas I think that the paramedic would be perhaps partly the reverse. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there are things that, that sort of bridge into that in different ways. And I think it's one of the things that working on the helicopter and ended up in remote areas is that you got doing things that you just had to do. There was no fire service coming to help you out. I remember one call, there was a volunteer service that one truck showed up and the closest thing to JAWS were Baco Spreader. We were able to use it and do what we needed, but it's understanding the incredible need for us to work together. I think we can find ways to do that. You know, what I struggled with in the old school fire service was, oh, we can take over the ambulance service and as rookies, they can work on the ambulance. Well, they were thinking back 20, 30, 40 years. It's like, my God, that's archaic. So you don't understand who the paramedics are today, but they were treating them as lesser than us. Again, it's our own unique perspective. Uh, It's so clear to us as individuals. (laughs) The same thing as paramedics on us is that they just see us as anybody can bash open this car or anybody can do that. That's just grunt work. You know, you can put whatever labels on it we want. It's work that needs to be done and it's actually highly skilled. Call volume is one thing, but the reality is if we have one of those that's needed, we need the service. Now, how do we maximize it? What we need is progressive and innovative leaders. I love listening to you talk with Rob Martin, and we need leaders who not necessarily think differently, but can be vulnerable and authentic and not have the answers. And we're a service who has the answers, who has to come up with the answers. Where we go has to be focused on the community. And I think that the conflict between paramedics and fire is what we need at the table for discussions. And I know I've been isolated from those and not included in them. I think if the OPFFA really wants to know where to go forward with fire medics is get a group of diverse, highly trained paramedics who happen to be firefighters as well 
and let them talk in a room together. Get the human beings together who do this. Those are your real subject matter experts. Yeah, and take that perspective because it's so important. It's so needed. Our community needs that to happen. And look at the amount of EMS work that the firefighters do. The reality is, you know, we can talk, you know, 60 to 80% of our call volumes. We're dealing with people all the time. This is the reality of the work that we do. And so EMS training as firefighters is a critical component. In saying that, how many departments have paramedics or firefighters in administration making decisions or policy? How many have them in training for EMS staff? I don't see it here, but we need to put them into leadership positions so that decisions and policies are made differently because it is different. It's a different perspective. I just want to highlight one more thing before we move back to you personally, just about the service. You mentioned you and Paul. You had the conversation with him when you got back from a call about how the benefit of you being able to hand over seamlessly from being a firefighter, but being able to assess at that level, give a report and someone picks up from where they left off. Now I've experienced it myself too, even being out of the paramedic service for 10 years now, you can give a report to a medic and sometimes they'll look at you and say, are you a medic? They pick up on it. That's a benefit to the patient and a benefit to them. And there's this understanding from the paramedic to the doctor side of the hospital that that continuation and handover, we all understand that, but for some reason there's a lack of understanding from the firefighter to the paramedics. So there's a couple things there. The firefighters can work just as hard to be good at their patient assessments and their handovers you know, to truly help people in that way. And then the paramedics can be more receptive to taking that handover and seeing it as that seamless system. So I think we're losing something there by not focusing on it. Well, I think what you're hitting on, as we talked in the past of these soft skills, is how we communicate to paramedics in the field. I've been in situations like you suggested. It was always very interesting how working as a firefighter in the 90s and there'd be newer paramedics who didn't know me and their partner would and they'd come into the room and would treat me a certain way, which is fine. I'm okay with whatever happened. Then they'd leave the room and come back and they'd treat me totally different. Well, what happened was this paramedic explained to them what job I did. And so it's two-sided, not just the medics, but it's us, is how do we communicate this and how do we put protocols and training in place for firefighters? And this is what I thought in the 90s I thought could happen, is work collaboratively through base hospitals on our training program for firefighters with medical training. But I saw it happen all the time is that they tried to take existing courses and apply them to our situation that we're in. The reality is I think what we needed to do is a unique medical training program that is really not based a lot in treatment, but based in really quick assessment and really good communication. But if we take a canned program and try to put it in place, it doesn't fit. It's a unique position that we're in as firefighters doing medical work because paramedics are coming in. We know they're coming. We don't need to do the whole thing. And I think when we look at a canned program, we're focusing on the whole thing. And I see why we have to do that, because sometimes we will be doing the whole thing. So we can't exclude that. But we really need to do this quick assessment and really, really good communication. Those skills we can really work on. And that would help the relationship, because it really is getting focused on the patient. And then having the skill set to fit in seamlessly with what's going on once the treatments really start taking hold. And then just a comment on you saying about sometimes they will be doing the whole thing. Again, canned programs, canned systems don't fit across geographically. So you need to adapt whatever system's in place depending on where you're at. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's given me perspective on that is working in small communities and large. It's, they're so different. And then working in a large community based with a helicopter and going into diverse communities. It's a whole gamut. You're in such a different situation. How you go about treating them as human beings makes all the difference in the world. And you can always build on their systems and teams. And I think that's what we can do better is building up the others and not tearing down. It's bringing in the experience that we have. We've got the skill and expertise to bring people together and say, what is really this tiered response job that firefighters are doing? How does it really play out? How does it really play out? So let's take 20, 100 scenarios and look and create a skill set and training based on that. And what we're going to find, the biggest piece, communication. And what do we need for communication is insight into ourselves and how we're coming across, which I love. So touching back to you landing in Thunder Bay and taking your EMS job, you also ended up building a family in that city. So let's touch back personally and walk me through that. Yeah, so we're going back to the 90s again. So I took my full-time paramedic job in 1988, worked Thunder Bay Ambulance in 92, started fire in 92, and and of course, continue that to this day. And Air Ambulance started in 90 and went to 2000. And like I said earlier, too, I'd come to Thunder Bay to work for a couple of years, make money, and head out west. And uh, it's probably not surprising to anybody. I met a woman <laughs> who I ended up marrying in 1995, and we had two kids. Curtis was born in 97, and Kyle was born in 99. The 90s for me was a very, very full time. A lot of changes, a lot of growth. So professionally, after I finished Air Ambulance, and it was clear it was a changing system in the advanced care system. And as part-time medics, we were going to need more, and I was working more fire. So it was time for that to come to an end, which I was grateful for the time that I had there. In a big way, I learned a lot, and it was a lot of fun as well. So you can see when I talk about my professional career that, you know, I talked about being the ADHD kid, it didn't really go away. And so here I am in the early 2000s, and it was at a time where I had a sense that stuff was going on with me. And I didn't know exactly what it was, but I had a need to do more. So I started doing a lot of public relations within the Firefighters Association here in Thunder Bay. And in my typical fashion, I've always been challenged with perfectionism. And today I've found a place to put that. Good enough was not a part of who I was. It was always, how can I do to the max? I was doing triathlon at the time as well, always doing lots of aerobic training, high volumes. And really, when I look back on it, a lot of it was coping mechanisms. But I started doing public relations, and it really resonated with me a lot. I took on the chair of the Firefighters Charity Ball in Thunder Bay that it had sort of ended, and then I had this sort of vision to take it over and make it a really substantial community event, which we did. It was sort of the event in Thunder Bay for a few years, sold out every year, made lots of money, high impact. We worked with cancer charities at the time. Firefighter, you may recognize his name, and many people will, Joe Adamkowski. He was our treasurer here in Thunder Bay, but he was also our district vice president with the OPFFA. A real instrumental member of the OPFFA, uh, along with people like Jim Lee and Fred LeBlanc. And Fred was one of the younger ones at the time, but Joe was right in there. And Joe was a big proponent and probably the guy who pushed us to get presumptive legislation for cancers. So Joe had cancer, and he was a big part of our drive to donate money to the local regional cancer foundation. And then we moved into children's charities, and we had this long-term vision for a lot of community impact with different groups. But it was really a big deal. 
the mistake that I made with that event was that it was really dependent on me. And that was certainly a lesson that I learned through that. And so the firefighters charity ball doesn't happen anymore. But I also started an event. It was our Thanksgiving dinner. And one of the things I love about, again, it's the firefighter in me, right? It's the first responder. Is that we were at a fire in the early 2000s around Christmas time. And it was a late night fire. And the Salvation Army soup pan was there for some coffee and hot chocolate for us. And I said something to them. They had had a Christmas dinner that one of the local hotels gave to them. I said, yeah, it was so nice to see the Valhalla do that Christmas dinner at the Salvation Army. And they said, yeah, it was really good. And we had a bit of a talk. And they said, but what we really need is one for Thanksgiving. And of course, as a firefighter's brain goes, well, we can do that. (laughs) So the next union meeting I went to, I brought up the idea of us doing this Thanksgiving dinner that we donate money and set up and serve and cook and do the whole thing for Salvation Army the next Thanksgiving. And the motion was passed. But Guido Nadine, who also died of cancer, he was our president at the time. He said, okay, that's a great idea. We voted yes. He said, but I'll only vote yes for it if you make a commitment for 10 years to run it. I said, okay, we can do that. Which was a great move, right? Great ideas, but you need leadership. It's do it. And it still goes to this day. I think they've served over 6,000 people Thanksgiving dinner. So it was very much getting involved. But to me, I saw the continuity of what I did as a first responder. Go into people's lives, see a problem, fix it. We can do that. We can do that. Did I know how? No, but we could figure it out. And we always did. So I got into a lot of public relations. It's interesting when I say this too, because people who grew up with me, again, going back to childhood, remember what I said earlier about my fear of heights. So I took up hang gliding and climbing. Well, as a kid, I was the kid who stuttered and couldn't talk in front of a classroom. And then I started doing media and public relations and public speaking. And teachers from way back and people who see me who knew me when I was a kid, they're blown away. But this is about facing fears. And this is what I would always do. But it was being a first responder of solving problems in crisis that just became second nature. And it didn't need to be in the field. It didn't need to be emergencies. But my brain would always go to solution-based thinking. At the time, it drove my ex-wife crazy because I was always fixing everything, right? Anything that would come up. And one of the pieces that I had to learn over time in conversations with people, and this comes back to relationships, is that sometimes when people talk about their problems, they actually don't want you to fix them. They just want to be listened to. That's one thing I learned. It's just like, hmm, maybe I don't have to fix everything. But when it comes to public relations, I ended up doing a lot of that in the 2000s. And what I found as a firefighter, we had this really unique way of being impactful in communities. I remember at a talk I did in 2011, I talked about firefighters' roles in the communities and the masks that we wear. I was talking about that mask that we paint on both sides and us living up to expectations as firefighters in the community. And I said to this audience, where do you think your idea of me as a firefighter comes from? You know, they throw different ideas. And I said, your idea for me as a firefighter comes from children's books. And then I said, how the hell do I ever live up to that? How do I feel when I let you down? These are pretty big expectations. And I think articulating why we have the strength that we do in a community is an important exercise to realize how significant that is and where it comes from. Why do we feel so good to be firefighters? I think articulating and really tearing that apart is what I started to do through public relations. Why are we so powerful? I remember the cancer charity we worked with, I'd said, I want five diamond sponsors, which were $5,000 each. And this is what I want for next year's event. And I had the CEO of the foundation, he sort of laughed at me and said, that's impossible. We work all year for one for our Bachelors of Hope auction. Within two months, 
I had her fifth one. Not only was he blown away, he was threatened by it, but it made me dig, like, why is it? Why do people, why do companies, why do organizations feel so strongly about us, so safe, so trusting? And it's this relationship that they have. And where does it come from? It gets built from childhood. And I think it's a big responsibility also that these are really good. We can do good with it, but understand where it comes from and how we end up feeling about ourselves uh, was sort of the path that I was on, this sort of journey that was bigger than just let's do cool stuff in the community. But I would always ask why, why, why? And it was always tied to stories. Why, why is it that people's stories matter? And getting away from the why, then people end up taking what exists for granted and they don't treat it with the respect it deserves and live up to it. The respect it deserves, I think, comes in the understanding is if we can do things that others can't or even partnering with other organizations. And I saw this from a community aspect when we partner with, say, the Cancer Foundation or the Boys and Girls Club, you know, one of the women's shelters. How powerful is that, having a firefighters association partner with a women's shelter to raise money? We need to do that because that's our community. And if we have the ability to do so, we have a responsibility to do so. If we have ability to do good in our community, we have a responsibility to do good in our community. We can't take that for granted. And I think that's one of the mistakes we made with our firefighters charity ball here. We chose not to do it. Well, how pompous was that? We could get five diamond sponsors when they work hard for it. And we, ah, no, we're not going to do that. We have responsibility. And that's part of it. And it goes in many, many ways, which brought me to in 2009 when I launched a collateral damage project. And that's a project we'll talk about on suicide. I was in a unique position to bring that forward, to move that forward. Sure, I'd lost my dad to suicide, and there's other aspects of me personally, but it came, it was different that a firefighter was doing it. Yeah, that's actually where I want to go next. So you've been a part of a number of projects, and I'm going to put all the links to all those in the show notes and also on the resource page. But let's focus on the collateral damage project. So walk me through that. So the collateral damage project, I had this idea, it was tied directly to me being a first responder. As I talked about losing my dad to suicide, for some reason I could always talk about it. And everybody's different, and even my siblings. Even to this day, I think one of my younger siblings would still say that he died of a heart attack. For some reason, I could talk about it. And so when it came up in conversation about family and somebody would ask me about my dad, I wouldn't hesitate to say that he had died. And people would obviously ask, how did he die? And I said he died by suicide. And what I found interesting, a number of times, because I could tell my story about my dad, people would engage in a dialogue. They would ask me questions or they would learn something from it. But it would continue because I could talk about it. And two things started to happen that were really consistent with these conversations is that one, people would start saying the line, I wouldn't picture you tied to suicide, Scott. So they saw me as this firefighter, this dad, this community guy, this athlete, whatever it was, it didn't fit what their picture of suicide was. And that was where the collateral damage project came from because I'm also a professional photographer. And when they said, I wouldn't picture you tied to suicide, and I begged the question, what is the picture? And so I did some research on suicide. And what I found was predominantly cold, dark text, usually about grieving and never that you could do anything about it. And I thought, if my one story helps, imagine creating a book of images and stories of those left behind by suicide. And that's where the idea for the Collateral Damage Project came. We launched on June 16, 2009, essentially inviting people to share their stories of loss to suicide and to be photographed that will eventually be part of a book and exhibits are already open. 
launching that at the time I had a lot of connections with media. So I went to CBC and said, I've got this idea for this project. And they right away said, we want to do it on Ontario today. Can we launch it on Ontario today? Inviting people to share their stories. So we launched this project of inviting people to share their stories of lots of suicide on CBC Radio Ontario Today. And what was fascinating about it is I'd done a lot of work with CBC at that time through a lot of the community projects I'd done. And this was the first time that they brought me in to do some trial run. Nobody was really sure who was going to call or what was going to happen. This had never been done before. And before we launched the project, one of the people that we had come on board was Alex Bowman, one of Canada's greatest swimmers ever, who had lost his brother to suicide. And they started the show with an interview with Alex, who's on our advisory team. And then we went into the one-hour call-in show that essentially I was a co-host with the CBC host at the time, and inviting people to share their stories of loss to suicide. We didn't know how people were going to respond. One of the things I did a couple months before, I thought, who am I to go on the radio and talk about suicide? Here I am in Northern Ontario. We have in the region with indigenous populations, some of the highest suicide rates on the planet in our region. And something in me drew me to go talk to Stan Beardy, who was at the time the Grand Chief of Nishinaabeaski Nation. And I knew Stan from other projects, so I knew him personally. So he said, yeah, come and talk. And so I went and talked to him about the idea. And I don't know if I was going to him to ask for permission or what it was, but I knew that a dialogue was necessary. And from that conversation, essentially, although Stan recognized that the issues that lead up to suicide for Indigenous people versus non-Indigenous can often be quite different, he was the one who said that when we lose someone to suicide, there's a universality of grief. And he says, I think this is a really good idea. So if I wasn't seeking permission, I think it came from it, and it made me feel comfortable, and that was such an important step for me. The day before we went on the radio, we sent out a lot of emails letting people know that this would be happening. And I woke up the next morning, and the process of people sharing their stories is through the website. Essentially, there's a page on the website that asks for some contact information, and then a box that says, tell me your story. It's literally a box on a website that people go to and type into, which is kind of blows me away sometimes when I think about it. And it comes to me as an email. And the first email I got was when I woke up the next morning. It was a young woman out of Dryden, Ontario, who lost her cousin one week before that in Pekanjikum. It's one of the First Nations communities who's been devastated by suicide and addictions and social issues for many years. And she talked about losing her cousin to suicide last week. Uh, he had graduated from grade 12 and he had been signed up for some military program in the fall and very short but succinct. And it really, to me, it was preparation to go on to the radio. And I realized at that moment that what my role was was the keeper of these stories and that the stories were everything. And on the radio, the stories were diverse and they were overwhelming. And you can listen to it. There's a link on the website. There's a woman from Oxbridge who I photographed for the book who calls in and talks and starts telling her story. And she starts off by saying, I lost my son Liam to suicide three weeks ago. And you can hear the breath in all of us in the studio just, this is real. And in the first couple of years, I received over 1,500 stories. And they come from all weeks of life. Um, and what the goal is for me is that essentially with the book to create a document that one, when somebody loses someone to suicide, they realize one, they're not alone and they can find a story within the book that resonates with them personally, whether it's a relationship, a time in life, 
details of a story of loss and just this connection of belonging and not being alone and not being isolated uh, was my biggest thing. Alex was the one who challenged me, is this about prevention? And at the time I said, no, it's not. I know about my dad, I know about my story, and that's all I can do. What we learned really quickly is that fundamentally we started this movement of storytelling that is really about prevention, is that telling our stories creates the basis for prevention. And that's really what the project is about. What's interesting, I moved into a lot of public speaking across the country. People would say in the first year, well, it's just a book. You need to do more public speaking. And so I started doing public speaking. People would come on board. We've got a fairly sizable advisory team of athletes and artists from across Canada. And I remember doing a talk at the University of Victoria with their social work group. And one of the profs came up to me afterwards and he says, I'm trying to wrap my head around how you can do this. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, people bring you stories. You just spent the last hour telling us about stories. And when you meet with people, how you meet about them, he says, I've got a PhD in social work. I've done all this work. And I try to teach what you're doing. And I don't understand how you know and can do this. And it hit me in the moment. It's what I did as a paramedic and firefighter my whole career. I walked into people's lives in the most vulnerable time and asked them to tell me their story. And I created an environment where they could trust me with it and do good with it. That's what the project really is in this really vulnerable and authentic way. But that's why I can do it is because this is really what first responders do every single day. The images are really important because it puts their face to it. This is who I am and it's okay. And you just manifested it and expanded it. Well, it's taken on a life of its own in so many different ways in that as a first responder, being able to use analogies. I remember in Niagara Falls talking at a conference, and there's many first responders in the room, there's social workers, psychologists, being able to use the stories that we're hearing in my experiences and move it into protocols and policy change, I think is fundamental is that it's nice to tell stories, it's nice to have this, but what are we going to do with it? Again, my brain is very much solution-based thinking, and I'm not going to minimize just the stories, but just the stories. What are we going to do with it? And I was talking at this conference, and because there was many first responder leaders in this room, it, it sort of hit me, and I started telling this story about how we can create real change, and I was talking about protocols. I said, here's an example. Say we have a call for suicide. And let's assume for discussion, it's a hanging. So we get a call, whether it's firefighters or paramedics, we go to this call and somebody's hanging. We have protocols of what to do for that call. Often, unfortunately, there's little we can do. And we go to leave in that call and we can look in the kitchen and see a family who's just going through the greatest trauma of their life. And I look at God and say, do you agree? And everybody in the room will nod their head yes. So, but based on our protocols and our training, we leave. Now let's go back to that same call, that same hanging, and now we go to leave and we look in the kitchen and I see somebody with a bone sticking out of their arm. I'm trained really well to go up to them, assess, treat, and transport, and they'll be healed in two months. Now let's compare these two traumas. And I said, I'm 48 years old and my dad's suicide still remains the greatest trauma of my life. And today, our protocols, unless you find me a first response service who has a protocol for something different, our protocols remain the same as when my dad died in 1982. We need to look at mental health differently as a trauma that it is. I said, because even if I fractured my femur today, 
trauma of losing my dad to suicide would still be the greatest trauma of my life. And I said, what we're doing right now is imagine if we had outside of this hall on the highway, three car pile up and we all go out there because we're all trained really well. The first responders in the room, we start doing the jobs that we're trained to do really well. And we have a neighbor of one of the people show up and said, Hey, that's Joe. I know Joe. I'm going to take him home. And we say, okay. And we let them do that. We wouldn't do that. But we do that today with suicide calls that we go on every day in probably every community. Because we see the psychological trauma and the healing that is required is beyond us. Psychological first aid is a term and it's a framework that is used in us helping each other, but we don't teach it or have policies or procedures for providing psychological first aid for people that we go to help. Inner uterine heart surgery is beyond me too, but there is something along that chain that I can do to help. Yes, and how we approach it, it's interesting. It's a nice little segue into... One of the analogies that I think is really important for us as first responders when it comes to us with PTSD and our mental health, and another part of my story, is the way we treat people in the field with mental health issues. So one of the things that I pose questions to a number of leaders, especially paramedics, is what call volume do you believe that you have that's related to addictions and mental health? Anecdotally, people will be between 30 and 80%. (laughs) So let's say 50% is that that keeps coming up, the call volume that has to do with mental health and addictions. Very, very high. And I say paramedics because I include that with us. It's the same thing of the call volume that we do because we're doing those calls. That chunk of EMS that we do is that same percentage. So it's very high. But let's look at our training in mental health. Not from a perspective of taking care of ourselves, but mental health in general. It's very, very low. But yet it's a very big part of our work. So I looked back on myself and said, when I started looking at how I, as a first responder, responded to mental health patients in the field, I started sort of tearing it apart. said, how would I describe those in the biggest part of my career? And how would socially within my professional environment, how would we describe mental health calls? Well, we'd call them a waste of time, using up space, we'd put all these other labels on them so that we could get to the real stuff of trauma and cardiac. So here I am a couple of years ago when I was diagnosed with PTSD, my feelings about myself mirrored almost exactly the way I felt about mental health as a paramedic in the field. I felt I was a waste of time, that I was useless, that people had more important things in their lives than me. All these labels came out on me. Rightly so, because not only had I trained myself to think that way about other people, I had practiced it over and over and over. I had been told by the OPAL study, mental health doesn't matter, cardiac does, trauma does. I didn't matter, because I was taught that mental health didn't matter. But yet it remains 50 to 80% of our call volume. And even if we took an approach of training first responders, firefighters, and paramedics on how to treat mental health in the field we would begin to treat ourselves better, less judgmental, more accepting, more understanding, more as an approach of something's wrong and we can do something about it. It's powerful for people hearing that perspective for the first time. We don't need to know how to fix it immediately. We don't need to know how to train everyone to treat mental health. Now it's in your mind. And what is the first step towards it? But the way I treated myself was the way I learned to treat myself. And it wasn't pretty. It's not good. And it 
tells me it wasn't good for people in the field. And that's where we have to go to begin to understand this is put protocols in place. And we could start with the suicide call is realize it's trauma. And when we begin to treat other people's trauma, our services will begin to create protocols that are more effective for our own trauma as first responders to better deal with it. When I go back to that conference that I talked about that scenario in the room and walking in the room with that broken arm, oh, by the way, a 17-year-old in there, that was me. The 11-year-old, that was my sister. We do that today. We abandon the 11-year-olds in the room because we can't deal with our own mental health because it's new territory and we don't know what to do. And what I've learned in the last two years, and it's certainly not with any blame or shame, in the last five to eight years that we've been talking about mental health, we've been talking about PTSD, we really believe that things are different. But I was diagnosed with PTSD in 2017. Here we are going on two and a half years later. I have not gotten a call or a check-in from a chief, a deputy, union president, anybody off the wellness committee. The person who oversees EMS and fire was an old training partner of mine, and our city manager was an old partner of mine who used to be a paramedic. These are really good human beings. They're smart. They care. They got into public service because they care about our community, but we don't know what to do. So we do nothing. So we do nothing. Well, not nothing, because nothing is an absolute. I don't like absolutes, because there are things. But we have to be able to say, like I'm saying to the OPFFA, to listen to paramedics, bring together guys like me, and there's many, to say, what should we do? Is it an assumption that someone else is doing what's necessary? So that's why we do nothing. Um, I agree with you. We work in a system of SOPs, protocols. Show me that protocol. Show me that policy. Show me that a supervisor, a leader can say, okay, it's been done here because I see it on paper. We're not going to that extent. What I see happening is that, and this is the disbelieving, is you know we have presumptive legislation. We have evidence on it. We've moved into a new era, and it's costly, and I think that's what's starting to hit now. But what I'm having a hard time with is I don't want policy made off my honor guard. We're doing that too much. We're doing too much of talking to widows. And this happens in death all the time. People who die get put on pedestals because they can't make mistakes after that. But one of the things that I posed when I gave you that list of people is I think this is where we have to go with this. And it's not a threat. It's not because I'm suicidal. It's not because I'm going to die. But I think we need to put this piece out. If I died today, would you come to my funeral? Why? What would you say to Chris and my two sons? And to be really blunt, why the fuck can't you say that to me today? You need to look in the mirror and ask that question. Because that is a problem. Because everything that we talked about about my career, we would so easily say at my funeral, that's wrong. I mean, I look at that article I wrote in The Intrepid. Fred came to me and needed this article. A few firefighters have died by suicide and we need to do something. They wanted a one-pager turned into five and the front page and the editorial that Jeremy wrote that was beautiful. That was 2013. I wrote that. I couldn't get anything back. And this certainly personalizes it, but what's stopping this? Because these are kind, caring, compassionate, professional human beings who do good work for community. 
and if they knew what they could do, they would do. And there are individuals, there are departments, there are teams that are doing, we are doing more today than we ever have. When we say we do nothing, I think we just need to clarify. We're speaking generally as still as a service. We're at a place where there are many that don't know what to do. That's the big thing, and that's what I'm finding even with WSIB, even with the city. We've got these policies and protocols and even clauses in the contract that have been there for 30 years. One of the clauses is how my salary changes after two years. Well, I've had to say to them, you know, we need to do this differently. And they're like, well, this is the path we're on. This is what the contract says. I said, this is dangerous. Well, why? I said, well, I'm the first one in Thunder Bay. Do you think anybody else is going to stay off work greater than two years? They're going to go back to work, not because they're okay to go back to work, but because they see this financial penalty. That's dangerous. We're lucky that I'm in a position with my partner that I don't need that. This is dangerous. You have such well-written policies for death benefits. You don't question that, but you question this. I think one of the fears, and I've framed this to people a number of times, is I don't care what system you put in place, taxes, you name it, there's going to be system abusers. But there's such a minute percentage of the population. So if you know it's going to happen no matter what, if you know it's such a small percentage, why would you make the entire population suffer because of that? It's interesting you bring that up because a number of people from within the fire service I've had this discussion with, and most often the first response out of their mouth is the abusers. If you're starting a discussion with that perspective, you're so far off base that you're not seeing me in front of you. If it's down on your list, number five or six, now we're having a real discussion. But if you can't tell me one, two, three, four things that are fundamental about mental health and suicide and PTSD and trauma, or when I look at the therapies I've gone through in the last couple of years and why they ought to be implemented for recruits that you could do, like an eight-week mindfulness program with two hours a week, you could take that recruit class and teach them in mindfulness. That's a fundamental treatment of therapy. Why fundamentals of yoga can be put in recruit training. If it's not, we're saying, I don't believe it. Well, these are the therapies that have worked. When you send me away to Homewood for two months or a month or three months, it's going to be a lot of mindfulness training. Okay, so what are we doing differently with recruits? Or let's look at research. I've posted this to a few universities now. We have mandatory retirement at 60 because of our physical capabilities. Our brains aren't fully developed until around 25 to 28 years old. Should we consider not hiring first responders until they're 25? What's the effects of PTSD on an undeveloped brain? When I went into those traumas before I was 25, how did that affect my brain? Could we alleviate this whole thing of me being off in the cost of WSIB and the organizations if I couldn't start till I was 25? I don't know. It's an interesting question. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Especially with the physical side. That could be a hiring policy that, wait, this should put alarm bells off. How many first responders in Ontario right now started their careers before 25? I did. And it wasn't until I saw my two sons. They look like men. <laughs> I can tell you they don't act like men. And I mean it in the kindest possible way, but we were the same way at that age. And I was going into calls that stood out in my career. I've also thought about how we physically screen firefighter candidates. If there are things that preclude them from getting on the job, 
we highlight them, they're able to go away, fix those things if they can, and then come back and retest and be physically capable and get the job. So why don't we do the same thing with mental health? Why not mentally screen candidates? And if there are red flags, then they're highlighted for them. And in some cases, they may not even know that they're there. So you would be able to become aware of something that might be harmful for you. It's not only that you're going to be a back injury in a WSIB claim, and that's not why we want you. It's also, if you come in this job with that back issue, you're going to blow your back out and that affects you. So being aware of the mental issues, it would be a good thing for you to realize it. It'd be a good thing for you to fix it and then come back and be prepared. And now you're going to have a healthier, happier career and everybody wins. Yes, especially you and your family. And again, when we look at what we're talking about, and because we both know him personally, is Rob Martin. So Rob Martin looks at a resume that sees mindfulness training and a meditation practice. That's going to carry weight. But for an administrator who has no knowledge or practice, it's not going to carry any weight. So when we look at what leadership really is, when it comes to the mental health components, it's not just taking road to mental readiness. It's not just checking these boxes. It's having a practice in your life that helps you deal with trauma. Then you can see it in others. Exactly. So you mentioned the Intrepid article, summer of 2013. The cover on the article, having Paul Combs, the image is amazing. The article, the image, it was perfectly structured. And how great of him to do it. I got a hold of Paul right away, Paul and Jeremy, and they had done stuff together before. It was perfect. Hopefully people will see it. But that article, what my perspective was, certainly coming from what I'd started with the collateral damage project storytelling, it quickly moved into suicide prevention. And again, it's a first responder in me that came out is, okay, well, here we have a problem. It's suicide. How do we prevent suicide? And we're in crisis mode now. And so safe talk is recognizing somebody with thoughts of suicide, uh, how to ask them, how to keep them safe, and how to connect them with existing resources. What I saw with that is a CPR model, is that part of the reason why I advocate so strongly for safe talk, because I think it's like CPR to cardiac, is that if I want anybody to know anything, if I drop of a heart attack right now, it's CPR. They don't need to know the physiology of my heart. They don't need to know that smoking's bad for me. They don't need to know about obesity. They don't need to know anything but just to keep me alive. So the starting point when it comes to suicide prevention is keeping people alive in a crisis. Certainly not the solution, certainly not the prevention, but this is what we need. And it was such a highlight. It was part of the work that I was doing everywhere, but I saw it as we need this as core training for firefighters. Then from Safe Talk, then we start looking at the issues that lead up to people having thoughts of suicide. And yes, mental health is a component of it. And we started seeing road to mental readiness after that. And at the time I was working really closely with the Mental Health Commission. I've done lots of work with them right through. And so because of the collateral damage project, I ended up in a place like even with the guidelines for the first responders first. Fundamentally, all of it is somebody's at risk of suicide right now. We need step-by-step protocol, what to do, how to do it. Those are the questions I kept getting. This is what I saw as a solution, essentially, is Safe Talk is taught by a Canadian company out of Calgary called Living Works. And people would say, oh, it's a private company. And I'd say, well, so is CPR. They're owned by American Heart. Again, these analogies, right, of my work as a first responder fits so well with this. So that's what I focused on with that article. And it was, this is what families can do now. Everybody needs this tool now, just like CPR. 
Then we look at the next steps. Interestingly, I had pushed Thunder Bay to do it. Thunder Bay was probably the first fire service to do it, and it was through constant push. They finally gave in. The deputy, <laughs> he was really good. Craig Hank, he was amazing. And they did it, and the classes were incredible, how it opened up men to talk about how they feel. Some people couldn't stay in it. Some people had to leave the room. 200 firefighters trained in less than, I think, two weeks or two blocks or something like that, I forget. And within a couple of weeks, I had heard directly from people who were involved that four firefighters were brought to emerge by colleagues who had thoughts of suicide. They now had the tools of what to do. And we have to start at this point of saving lives and then move back from it. What are the issues that lead up to it? And this is why I think we also have to be careful of mental health. Yes, it's mental health, but let's tear that apart. I love tearing stuff apart. Is what do people need? What are people looking for? Recently, working with somebody close to me, he is dealing with a lot of mental health issues. He's a brilliant human being. He can do math in his head quicker than my partner, who's been a chartered accountant her whole career. He can do math in his head quicker than she can on a calculator. But he couldn't figure out how to get an apartment. He couldn't figure out how to get the hydro hooked up. He was living in a trailer. His basic needs weren't being met, and he was going downhill. He had lots of people around him saying, I'm here for you, dude. What he needed was somebody to hold his hand, see him where he's at, not judge him, and step by step realize he's not sleeping, he's not eating, he doesn't know where to go, what to be. Never mind try to keep a marriage together or even see his young children. So really seeing people who they are and where they're at, are their basic needs being met, and moving backwards from that. Was he at risk of suicide? Absolutely. Makes complete sense. People don't have a reason to live. Suicide's an option. But when we move them back away from that, it changes everything. And it's based on the traumas that we face, bring us here. And so there's things that we can do. So that article was, I think, a big tipping point. But what change have we seen since? I don't know. So coming out of that article in 2013, it was at a time where I got separated from my wife. I was asked to leave. I mean, God, we spend a whole podcast talking about that, but that's what happened. So I was separated from my wife in 2013, still close by with the boys, spending time with the boys, but that was a huge, huge hit for me. To say I was in uncharted territory was an understatement. But I was really good at, and I think as first responders we are, of trying to push through things and put on a good show. I was, I was really good with that. And I would just do more work. So I was really involved with the project, doing public speaking and going through the separation. Just still seeing my boys, but getting used to what this was and what it meant uh, emotionally. I was all over the place. We never got back together. It was a really tumultuous separation and eventually divorce. We're kind of on some sort of talking terms, but it's not great. But we get through. And so the next couple of years, really difficult times for me. Emotionally, I was all over the place. I was booking off work sick a lot. Just didn't want to be there and couldn't be there. A lot of my memories about it are somewhat foggy. But then I remember when the talk in around 2015 came up about the presumptive legislation for PTSD. You know, of course, I was involved with that and watching it carefully. I remember one of the people on our advisory team for the project is a psychologist on the West Coast. And her clinical practice is predominantly with first responders. Her PhD thesis was on firefighters and mental health. Her dad was a firefighter. Her husband's a firefighter. So she's a fantastic 
person have on our advisory team, Lisa Kitts, her name. And I was out in BC doing some talks, and Lisa and I had gotten together a few times. And I remember in, in passing in conversation, and Lisa's really frank, an incredible human being. And I said to her, I said, I think I've got PTSD. And she looks at me and sort of laughs and said, yeah, I think. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? And essentially, I got her to talk me through about what PTSD looks like, what happens. And that's what it was. Scott, I was like, wow. Okay, so this stuff isn't normal. She says, no. <laughs> and really pragmatic. And so and I started talking about nightmares, talking about memories, talking about hypervigilance talking about she says oh yeah every time we walk into a restaurant walk into a room i could give you a quiz of people in the room the exits the doors what they're saying what they're doing and you'd ace it and that's come from everything that you've done so we had this big conversation kind of left it at that but i knew the presumptive legislation was coming and so i thought hmm i'm gonna wait till 2016 and i kind of put it aside and then 2016 of course we get our presumptive legislation i think it was in the spring then i thought oh, I'm up for a captain promotion probably this summer. I'm going to wait for that because I don't want to not get that because of this. So I waited to the summer 2016, got my promotion, and then I thought, oh, shit. Now there's a year probationary period. I'm going to wait till next summer. And here I am. Mental health was not good at all. I was isolating from friends. I had moved away from everybody. I was hiding away in my house. I had the boys a week on, week off. But not even that. They're staying at their mums more. They were usually pretty freaked out about my behaviors and emotions. But I thought I was handling things pretty good. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to wait till the summer 2017 once I get through my probationary period. And early, like January, February of 2017, it was really getting bad. I had no contact with friends, going to work on and off, and ended up in this full-blown crisis that nobody knew about. I could sometimes go to work. My weight around the time was 10 pounds lower than my Ironman weight. I looked horrible. Nobody said anything to me. And finally, I went to my deputy chief and said, how do I do this? So I told him what was going on, and I want to file some WSIB paperwork. What do I do? And he says, well, get the paperwork from the platoon chief. So I went to the platoon chief and told him what I was going to do. And at the time, we had paperwork. They were switching to a digital version. And we sat in front of this paperwork, and there was nothing for mental health. You know, and I was quite blunt, and it was like, where the fuck do I write bad dreams? What do I do with this? And I actually had to do the research, do the work, and walk them through the paperwork. And it was a district chief, then it was a platoon chief, and then finally went up to the deputy again with the paperwork. I said, Greg, what do I do with this? He says, just sign it and leave it with me. Scott, go take care of yourself. And then I spent probably a couple weeks curled up in a ball in my bedroom. I didn't make the appointment with a psychologist. And then one day a friend came over and we talked for a bit and said, you really got to make that appointment. I had some therapists before, but they were social workers and they were really, really good. And one of the things that pissed me off about the presumptive legislation is that I had a really good therapist, but I couldn't use her because she was, didn't fit the criteria. And she had actually said, go get your psychologist. You need to get into the system. And that's what I did. I found a psychologist who agreed to take me and did the diagnostics. The diagnostics took a few days. And one of the pieces with the diagnostics was profound. 
is that there was sort of clinical stuff in the office with him, and then he gave me this questionnaire to bring home in this brown envelope. And I remember taking it and putting it on the desk, and uh, I had the boys, so I didn't want to really look at it yet. So a couple of days before they left, I looked at it and put it back, and I thought, okay, I'll deal with this when they're not here. And, and I finally took it out when they weren't here and went through it. And for the first time in my life, I was honest. So the questions in the questionnaire, lots of questions about depression and anxiety, but suicide. Uh, how many thoughts of suicide this month, this week, the last few days? Nothing held me back from being honest. And I learned a lot that I actually use when I teach about listening. And when I got to the end of it, I realized that when I answered the questions, the piece of paper didn't get afraid of me, didn't try to fix me, didn't judge me, didn't try to change me. And I couldn't do it with anybody else because I would scare them away or they'd try to fix it or make it go away or judge it. And when I finally got done that, it was cathartic like nothing else in my life. In the, in the next few days, I brought it to my psychologist and we had an appointment to discuss the diagnostics. And this assessment was based on a uh, numbering system of 1 to 100. And uh, he's going through it, explaining that to me, that, okay, it's a process of 1 to 100. Anything over 60 would be mild PTSD. And he's going on. And I finally said, Paul, just tell me my freaking number. And he said, uh, it's 98. So I said, Wow. I didn't do with that well in high school. <laughs> and, and his response to me, I'll never forget it. It was, yeah, if you did that well in high school, you wouldn't be here today. <laughs> he says, and I mean that in the kindest possible way. <laughs> yeah. And I remember after it, this profound effect, it's like, wow, this is, this is real. So that was the start of, okay, here I am. Uh, therapy, I'm off work, but the isolation was immense. Nobody, nobody came near, which made me feel like I just had to shut up, which made me question everything. It wasn't good. I remember running into, and this was into my therapy a bit, running into one of the guys off our wellness committee at Chapters just outside, and he hadn't seen me, he hadn't called, nobody had checked in. And he asked me how I was doing. And I, and I was sort of hesitant. And he says, come on, it's me. And he said his name. I said, okay. And I gave him what was going on in my head. And part of that, not that I was suicidal at the time, part of that was blowing my head off. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and then he was going down this suicide. I said, no. I said, dude, you told me you wanted to hear what was going through me. And he said, yeah, but we had this conversation and he went his way. He never followed up. I'm thinking, he's a good human being. What the hell is this about? And so here I was after all this work that I'd done in suicide is realizing the isolation. I mean, I had suicide notes that started with, I want no dress uniforms. I wanted human beings in my life. And, you know, kind of what I talked about when you and I met in, it was a Kitchener Waterloo and I did a talk with the first responders was, I grew up, I worked in this career or this world, this life that referred to a family, a brotherhood. I could walk into a fire hall in North America, be part of this group. We call ourselves brothers and sisters. But when was the last time we talked about love? Except for the yogi in the room, of course. <laughs> but that's it. We 
got to get real. We can't just use the word brother and not love. Or assume that it's inferred or known. Well, even that inference as brothers who we happen to be fathers as well, we wouldn't just say to our kids, well, you know that because I'm your dad, I just infer that I love you, right? No, we say that word over and over. <laughs> you know, maybe there was a time with our dads that was difficult, but not so much anymore. But again, this disconnect is like, okay, it's the emotional side that we've got some work to do and we can do it. What I love about what I've been through, it shows me that we can do something about this, that this can be a blip in a generation of first responders that we can put prevention, which is actually the treatment processes, which is you know, mindfulness and yoga. And we have baseline hearing tests, but we don't have baseline psychological tests so that we can see a psychologist once a year just because we can put programs in place where families are taught about PTSD and trauma and the effects so that our loved ones are the first one to say, hey, something's going on, long before it becomes a divorce or separation or marital issues. The relationships are the key component to trauma and PTSD and mental health. These are the pieces that we can put in a, essentially a protocol for training, that we have these recruits for 10, 12 weeks. We can embed these in a generation of first responders that will have these preventive tools. And we owe it to the people that have done the steps before us to get to this point. We owe it to them to carry the torch farther. We certainly owe it to them to carry it further. And we owe it to my sons and my partner in a real time today instead of waiting for me not to be around to do it. Because that's vulnerability. To say, I'm sorry afterwards, I didn't believe him, doesn't cut it then. We can do this now, but you have to sit and talk and listen. And it's dismissive to say, we can't or it won't work. And my second thought is, what's the worst that could happen if we try? Absolutely. And quite frankly, the tools that we talk about, and Rob and I have talked about this a bit, is that when we look at the tools for trauma and PTSD and, and mental health in the field, not only would it do that, but it would make us better firefighters. The core job, that crew ready to go into that burning building from a mindfulness approach, when we start looking at what's going through our minds right now, take me for an example, in a position going through separation and divorce, that's clogging my mind. You know, when we look at firefighters, one of the younger ones would have been having a new baby and another one with relationships. All this stuff is being brought into this fire. When we teach mindfulness as a core component of what we do, then we're able to be present in the work that we're doing and it creates a safer fire ground. It's not just this. Yeah, I think that's the kicker, that it's not just going to make you a little bit better. It'll make you 10 times better. It will in all the facets of our life, in our families, in the work that we do, in our communities. This is such a win, 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 win. And what we have to acknowledge is we're at a place where we don't know what to do. So beyond the diagnosis then, walk me through your steps. And did you try and take on too much too soon? How did that healing process begin? Well, part of it started a bit before is that I was lucky enough to have a therapist who challenged me to start doing yoga. She said, Scott, I want you to do yoga and you can't be the best in the class. <laughs> That's huge. That is huge, actually. <laughs> so one, the place that I was going, there wasn't a lot of men. So I was walking into this predominantly feminine 
place. And I really had to be focused on me and my mat. And this was all new to me, but I really got focused on me and my mat. And I started doing yoga every day. And it was at a time too, again, that I was in contact. Luckily, he's played a significant role in guiding us, even from the outside, was Rob Martin. Again, having mentors is really important. So the yoga was a start. And so what really kicked in after the diagnosis was essentially really, really definitive daily practices of meditations in the morning, yoga, a little bit of endurance exercise, not too much, and relationships, connecting with people. Even to a point I isolated myself so much that even for me, by around three or four o'clock in the afternoon, if I hadn't talked to anybody, seen anybody, I would just go to chapters, which had a Starbucks, and I'd usually run into people, but just being around strangers. I had to stop myself from isolating and being away from people. Um, so my daily routine really was the core component of I would get up in the morning before sunrise. I'd wake up with the yoga. It was a yoga wake up. I'd do two meditations, have a coffee, then go photograph sunrises. And I love photography. So it got me up every day with purpose and get out to do something. So some movement. Uh, and then I'd come back and have quite a healthy raw breakfast. And later in the morning, do some exercise. And then again, lunch, like everything turned into this regimented, what my daily activities were. At first it was a burden. And then it just turned into this really nice flow. I didn't really have to think. Uh, my meditations at night when I would wake up with nightmares, which was almost nightly, I found meditations for those. At first they didn't work at all. Sometimes I couldn't get back to sleep. And it took probably two years for my nightmares to calm down. One of my favorite meditations with Sarah Blondin's about transforming fear and her line at the beginning is something like fear what have you come to teach me um, huge like these seemingly small pieces became the way that I could get back to sleep and be in that you know and these were stabbing these were drowning dreams this me under the ice this was they were really horrible stuff from calls that I had done before and began to put me in a place, not of fear, but okay, here I am, it's here, it's not gone away, but I'm okay. And so finding a place of safety, and it really was those daily practices. But the missing piece for me was trying to have meaningful connection. I met a psychiatrist who really drove home some things for me that were really important. He says, what I want you to do is you need to have something that's tied to purpose and mastery, and something that you could do every day. And it's when I got back to wood finishing and wood finishing live edge, I'd buy live edge pieces of wood actually from the Guelph area and polish them to perfection, cutting boards, security boards. And it was really an important piece because I had done so much work of purpose that I just needed that in my life. But interestingly, when I did focus on mastering purpose, even with the project work or that wood, that was socially unacceptable from people who didn't understand. You know, there was firefighters, there's people in the community saying, oh, you're off work on WSIB and making money doing this stuff. It's like, no, I'm not giving it away. I'm not selling anything. <laughs> and, and even at that, that I had to defend it was ludicrous. And it was part of my therapies, part of my treatments and had to be reminded of it and why it was good for me. But it was those daily practices. And it took probably a good year and a half to just level my mind in a way that I could breathe again. It took so long to get there. You can't expect to come out of it so quick. Well, one of the things I learned, and, and you're exactly right, is 
took so long. I realized when I started doing public relations stuff with FIRE, I actually kind of wanted out. Why well, I stopped working air ambulance, I needed out. And so these, I could look back and these points in my career that said, okay, something's not working here. People have said, well, why didn't you get out? And I call it the golden handcuffs. You know, in hindsight, to see the state I was in, which was suicidal, yes, you can see, Scott, why didn't you get out before? Okay, but let's look at it. Early 2000s, married, two kids. I'm the predominant breadwinner in the house. I'm working four on, four off. I have a job that everybody wants. And I'm going to suggest that I quit. Nobody in their right mind would do that. Well, it's also the same thought process that caused you to delay getting care until it was convenient or fit in with your life when in reality you're at your rawest and it would have only taken one major more life event or one call before it tipped for you. Mm -hmm. And so it is having the ability to create in our system understanding of mental health and having real authentic and vulnerable conversations for firefighters to be able to say, and I think it would help us stay more healthy within our systems, I need out. Well, we can take care of ourselves better than that. What I needed was, I was good at what I did, so we can, I believe that we can still do this. But I think when we put tools in place for our mental health and wellness, truly commit to it from a recruit perspective all the way through, I think we're going to make it so it is a healthy place to work. It is more dynamic and it's more acknowledging of where we're at. I think it has to be built into our contracts even that we see psychologists once a year from when we're healthy. So we have those benchmarks for what's healthy and what's not. Everyone has a doctor. Everyone has a dentist. We go to these professionals for a reason. Why do you think you can handle your mental health on your own? Absolutely. And, and when we can, it's, it's such an eye-opener, you know. So I can't think of anyone better to ask this question to. Don't you think we have to, when someone is affected, that it has to be on the table that coming back might not be best for them? That that is an option. I think in the service still, where we're at right now, it is seen as success or healed to go through the process, whatever that process is deemed, and then return to work return to the fire service, and you mentioned the golden handcuffs. It needs to be at some point on the table that emergency service work or work at this level, that might be it. But then with that comes identity loss. There's so many factors that keep bringing people back or seeing that as the only way to come back when really that might be the most detrimental thing they can do and that they are able to find value as a human being and a person doing something else. So can you speak to that? Yeah, I'm going to speak to it in a couple of ways. I think it's really important. I think with me personally, if you add up the years that I've put in, it would get into 40 plus years. And it's not saying that to diminish those who have been in less. And what I've done in that time, if this were a physical piece, and I've used this analogy before, is I have, and I would argue too that so is my ex-wife and my kids, I have essentially cut a chunk of me out and thrown it on the steps of City Hall. I am not working because of the work that I did. That's why I'm off, not because of anything else. I think we have to agree to that. It's a huge question that you're asking of not going back because for me, and to be completely vulnerable with it, that is the biggest thing. I, through a large part of my therapy, was staying unwell 
and the fear of being well and having to go back. Whatever well meant. I didn't know what well meant. My therapist had to pull me away from that because I would keep myself sick. And it wasn't a made-up sick. It was, you're so sick (laughs) that you can't go back to this. The problem is it's not that I couldn't go back to it and that I can't go back to it. It's my sense of belonging. Because of the inability of individuals, and we'll call it individuals because I think it's not systems, it's individual people, to be able to keep me connected. I've had more people call me for holiday trades than to see if I'm okay. We can make people feel like we're always part of this, call it a system. I have a hard time calling family because I don't feel part of it. I don't. That is fundamentally wrong. But even as a paramedic, I think even as a system, they want to be able to wipe their hands of me. My issues go back as a paramedic and firefighter. So the person who oversees both those departments, I should be as much contact with people who run EMS in this town as I do fire, because that's where my shit came from. (laughs) And the reason is that they can learn and grow and help others so this doesn't happen. One of the most powerful pieces for me was when another firefighter was off with PTSD this year, and so he was in adult mental health. I sent him a text and to see how he was doing. His response to me in his text was the most healing piece of my journey because what he wrote were literally my words from two years ago. And for the first time, I felt this is real, and I started to believe myself that I didn't make this up because I couldn't make it up because he couldn't write what he did unless we had the same shit going on. And that made me feel like, okay, I'm okay. I didn't make this shit up. I was left to feel like I made this up. So the piece of your question about going back is that I might not be able to go back to work and do these jobs, but if we can't look at me and my career and, and what I've put into it and given, if we can't keep me part of the system, who can? You know, I think about the Intrepid article. I think of Safe Talk that fired it here. I think of what I've given for the Firefighters Charity Ball, the Salvation Army, all this stuff. And it's not, a, oh, I gave this, so I need that. No, let's look at the calls. Let's look at what I did. Let's look at what we do by stepping forward and saying, I'm a part of the fire service. That's it. That's what we're saying to ourselves. When we join the fire service, join the associations, whether it's our locals, the OPFFA, or the international, we are part of a system that are bigger than ourselves. Now we have to live up to that because it's there. We call this family. There's something missing right now. It doesn't need to be that way. When we want to solve a problem, when we get in the field, we're really good at that. We're really good at tapping into the knowledge that we have at hand. But we go back to the fire hall okay, I've got this title, I've got this seniority, I've got, hmm, okay, why does it work so well in the field? (laughs) Maybe it's the evolutionary biology piece. We have to survive. We have to do this. Let's tear this apart. Let's get uncomfortable. We can do that. Let's get gritty with it. Let's have questions more than answers. You know, when we look at peer support, when I talk to social group classes now, I use a blank piece of paper. How do you truly listen to somebody? 
Well, do you truly listen to them by understanding you're bringing judgment to the conversation, that you're bringing a scattered mind to the conversation, you're bringing your stuff to it, and you're not really present. And so how to be present is acknowledge your own stuff, which is judgment and blame and shame. And so it's digging inside of ourselves, ironically, and that allows us to set us free to listen to somebody else. How can Chris really listen to me if I'm having these thoughts? Well, I've got to work on this relationship. We have to work on this relationship so it can be the human being that I am. And I have to let her be that human being that she is. That's really a lot of work in relationships. And I think that's where we're at with PTSD. Is that the fundamental healing component of mental health and PTSD is relationships. Knowing that, that's the same thing with me and that list of people, whether it's the president of my union, whether it's my fire chief or the deputy chief or wellness committee or whoever it might be, it's a relationship. If they don't step up in that relationship and learn about PTSD and mental health and, and meet me somewhere, it's not a relationship. Then don't call a family. Don't call me a brother. If you're in it for a relationship, learn. And we have the tools. How many people, how many services in this province have gone to first responders first that was legislated to follow the best practices for our presumptive legislation for PTSD? Follow that. And what's one of the golden rules in the whole thing? Don't disconnect. That's the biggest thing is don't disconnect. It's very often preached in our service to get comfortable with being uncomfortable when it comes to physical work. Yeah. So perhaps we need to learn to get comfortable with being uncomfortable when it comes to conversations as well. Mm -hmm. And we can do it. We've seen it. You know, I was there with Joe Adamkowski. And Joe Adamkowski was a key player, like I said earlier, in moving presumptive legislation forward for cancer, for firefighters in Ontario. And I was there, and many people listening to this were there for his funeral. This is no different. That's how we have to show up with those voices, those connections, that meaningful connection to Job before he died. They didn't wait for him to die. They were right there giving him, connecting everything. We can do that. And I challenge fire services that everything that they do for those firefighters that have cancer, do the same thing for those struggling with mental health and PTSD. It's no different. And when we treat it differently, ask ourselves why and dig deeper and look for those answers within ourselves because we have them. Where can people reach you if they want to reach you? Probably the best way is through the project, which is leftbehindbysuicide.org. And my contact information, it's all there. They can email me at scott at leftbehindbysuicide.org. It's sort of slowed down the last little while because of stuff that I've been through, but my contact information is all new and fresh and uh, the one thing I'd say to you and anybody else is, is never, never hesitate to reach out. And uh, certainly that's why I make my contact information readily available because it's the one thing that we need to do. And I think when it comes around to preventing suicide, the only people that can save anyone is ourselves. We have to do that. And we can learn how to do that. For anybody listening, anytime, don't hesitate give me a call or send an email and we'll connect because uh, I think that's what we have to do. Well, I don't think I can possibly express the immensity of the value of the work you have done and you continue to do and the value of you taking the time to talk to me for these few hours. So I'm incredibly grateful. 
Uh, Scott, I mean, we've been talking quite a bit, and I'm grateful for this opportunity and just be part of everything that you're doing with the podcast. I think you are certainly nailing what we need to, and you're nailing it with vulnerability and authenticity and searching and asking the questions and willing to sit and listen. And uh, I'm grateful for our time and our relationship. 